Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, the show about critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me as usual is Cameron. For the last time. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's episode 13. Wow. One final rodeo. <laughs> Gotta get back up on that bull. And what a bull it is. A bunch of bullshit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Woo, we're in that blogs. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo. Yeah. Woo. We gotta gotta talk about these things. These massive, massive things. Um, well, one massive thing, really. But uh the epilogues. Where is it? You're talking about big presidential car cat? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, big presidential car cat. Uh big presidential car cat uh dueling uh uh frankly big boss car cat. That's right. That's right. <laughs> also, Big Jade. Big, muscly, feral dog Jade. Yeah. Rob Liefeld presents Jade. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the epilogues, which um, I, I should probably maybe be explicitly stated here at the top if you're someone who hasn't been reading along thus far and has no interest in reading along now still. Uh, the epilogues are are a book or rather like mm -hmm. they they start as some web pages and then they are published as a physical print book so it's not mm -hmm. a, a web comic um, i really want to say too mm -hmm. if you've been like oh you know a coherent book at the end maybe i'll just tag in and read that don't do it <laughs> please don't i'm asking you not to read the epilogues <laughs> cameron didn't have a great time it seems like no they're bad. Okay. It's not good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> without the epilogues, I probably wouldn't be doing this show. But, uh, I mean, as, as we've established. We'll so talk it's about worse than I thought. <laughs> it's worse, yes. It's ma It made this happen. Uh-huh. It went back in time to force me to do stuff. <laughs> that I didn't want to do. <laughs> And isn't that really what Homestuck is all about? Apparently, that's uh, yes. Apparently, if you talk to anyone who likes it, yeah. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> that, is, that seems to be the case. Oh gosh. <clears throat> well, and we I can say that as someone yeah. who generally likes it. <laughs> but yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. The other thing I guess to note here at the top, in case you know, we t we have content warnings in the episode descriptions, uh, but. In this case, there will be content warnings, absolutely. And if you have... Uh, <clears throat> you getting choked up about it? A little bit. <clears throat> uh, it's just... It just makes me... <laughs> get emotional. Just, I get it. so worked up thinking about, uh, you know, the himbofication tag that appears at the beginning of this book. Which, by the way, the yeah. books also have content warnings. They're presented as an archive of our own uh, fanfic with, like, the, the content warning cloud at the beginning of either one. Uh, anyway, this is all to say, uh, content warnings, n not a joke. Like some, some, these epilogues get really dark. Uh, it, you might, if you've heard of them, you probably know that they were controversial within the Homestuck fandom and there is reason for that. And, and, uh, we're going to talk about it, but I guess probably first I should summarize. Please. Ten years after Homestuck, John Egbert wakes up on Earth-Sea from a dream of the anime-style apocalypse of Paradox Space. Rose Lalonde reaches out to discuss it and reveals she is terminally ill. She has become aware of too many alternate selves and timelines, and in her metaphysical ascent toward ultimate selfhood, her regular physical body is failing. 
She explains a new theory of existential canonicity to John, based on ideas of truth, relevance, and essentiality. She says that if John does not travel back into the canon of Homestuck and defeat Lord English, everyone's lives will be wholly invalidated as untrue, irrelevant, and inessential. She gives him some instructions on how to avert this, but before he sets off, Roxy and Calliope invite him on a picnic. After he explains what's up, they say he could go back and defeat Lord English, or he could say screw it and stay on Earthsea. Calliope also gives him his choice of picnic dish, meat or candy. If John chooses meat, what happens is this. John realizes he must go back and defeat Lord English, and so, following Rose's instructions, he zaps into Homestuck Cannon just before Arania steals the Ring of Life. He takes it from her, dooming the timeline, and then rounds up the 16-year-old versions of the other seven kids for the final battle. They zap into the moment Caliborn has already shown us in his masterpiece. As foretold, Caliborn traps John, Rose, Dave, and Jade in the House MacGuffin for several subjective eternities, during which time John realizes he has depression. Finally, at the end of Homestuck, Vriska unleashes the MacGuffin and John and his friends emerge into the final battle, moments after the end of Homestuck proper. God-tier Calliope's singularity is already absorbing paradox space. Lord English murders basically everyone. Rose is incinerated, Jade is impaled by a shard of space-time, and Dave is decapitated. Vriska and Mina are lost in the fray. Dave Pettisprite grabs L.E. with their claws and pulls him into the singularity. English is finally gone, but John received a wound from one of his teeth that is slowly poisoning him with deadly venom. He wanders the endless void for a while before finding Mina. She steals the Ring of Life from him and absconds. Eventually, he finds Terezi, who has been searching the void for Vriska. Terezi removes English's tooth, and then she and John have aggressive sex. He asks her to return to Earthsea with him, and she agrees, but when they arrive, John dies. Throughout all of this, we've been getting updates about life on Earthsea, and things aren't going great. Jane has decided to run for president of Earth. In addition to being a god, she is already very powerful and well-connected after restarting Crocker Corp, and many fear she will run on a platform dedicated to curtailing trolls' reproductive rights. Dave convinces Carcat to run against her, and much of their time is spent working out which god-celebrity endorsements from their friends they can count on. After consulting with Dirk, who turns out to be Jane's campaign manager, everyone realizes the deciding endorsement will come down to the most beloved and famous of them all, Jake English. Jade then tries to get Dave and Carcat to have some honest talks about their three-way living situation and what it means. Meanwhile, Jane tries to seduce Jake in order to win his endorsement, but he flees due to his lingering feelings for Dirk. Rose contacts Dirk to discuss her condition, and he reveals that he already knows quite a bit about ascending to your ultimate self, which he's also been doing. In fact, he switches the color of the book's text from nondescript black to trademark orange, revealing to us that he has assumed narrative control and has been dictating events for some time, and we all find this revelation mind-blowing. Jade talks politics with Roxy and Calliope, hoping they will endorse Carcat, but they plead neutrality. Both also come out as non-binary and now use they-them pronouns, a decision Dirk narratorially scoffs at and undermines. Jade abruptly passes out, just as the alternate Jade who died in the final battle with English is pulled across the event horizon of Calliope's singularity. With this, God-tier Calliope reveals that she too can assume narratorial control, turning the text of the book red. And Dirk shifts the scene to escape. Kanaya tries to call Rose, but only reaches Dirk, who diverts her. 
He explains to Rose that full ascension will destroy her physical body, a process he is using his powers to delay for now, but he has built a robot body into which she may transfer her essence if she allies herself with him. He narrates her into agreement. Jade wakes up and is almost immediately possessed by God-tier Calliope, who wholly usurps Dirk's narratorial control. Meanwhile, Dave and Carcat secure Jake's endorsement and plan a rally for the announcement. During the rally, Dirk ascends a nearby bell tower with a sniper rifle, apparently planning to assassinate Jake, but in fact takes out the possessed Jade with a tranquilizer, putting Calliope to sleep and allowing him to assume narrative control again. He makes Jake profess his love for Dirk publicly and switches endorsement to Jane, who now handily wins the presidency. Time passes. Terezi and John return to Earthsea and John dies. Terezi can hear Dirk through the narration, and he invites her to join him as he and Rose soon plan on leaving the planet. She figures why not, and tags along with John's corpse in her possession. Dirk narrates Kanaya into giving up on speaking to Rose ever again, convincing her that this is better for Rose and that they will both be happier overall. He also gives her the antidote to the tranquilizer he used on Jade, who's been comatose for a month. Then he swings by Jake's house and requisitions a spaceship for the upcoming journey and crushes Jake's spirit by explaining he will not be tagging along, but instead stay behind to serve as the dictatorial Jane's immortal concubine. Before leaving the narrative, Dirk makes sure to narrate Dave and Carcat into a full-blown makeout session, having tired of the typical light-touch Dave-cat BS. Jade is still comatose in the hospital. She is visited by Kanaya and Roxy, who is going by he-him now. Roxy explains that since Jade was first possessed, this Earth's calliope has been locked in their room, scrawling a mixture of terrifying and adorable artwork on the walls. Kanaya wakes Jade with the antidote, and Jade immediately declares that Dirk must be stopped. Through the narrative text, Dirk agrees, acknowledging that by seizing control of the story, he has made himself the villain. <laughs> and he accepts this necessary structural antagonism in his eventual just death as the price to be paid for keeping relevant stuff going. As he leaves this narrative behind... God-tier Calliope possesses Jade once more and fills the authorial vacuum. Kanaya realizes how extensively she has been manipulated, and she, Roxy, Dave, and Carcat band together to seek out Dirk and make him pay. Then, in the meat epilogue postscript, we are thrust into a scene for which we have no context. A young version of Jade, somewhere on Earthsea, has bloodily devoured something huge. Aradia, remember her? Watches in a mixture of awe and confusion. Dave shows up, but he's a robot now for some reason. Jade, who has gained immense power, opens a vortex in the sky, and together, the three of them abscond through it. This would all make marginally more sense if, perhaps, we'd chosen candy during the picnic at the beginning of the story. In which case... Oh... Oh, this is weird. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I just got an, an an email. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Did, did it? Uh, ding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, right? You would know. Uh, I'm always getting emails every time we record, and they're always dinging and everything. And I'm always stopping to read them, and it's really a huge hassle. But we tend to edit that stuff out. Um, but this one that I just got, uh, it's from anonymous.gov. And the subject line, I, I, this is very odd. I think I should keep this one in. The subject line is, what happens is this. After eating candy at the picnic, John decides he doesn't need to go fight Lord English. Roxy and Callie are thrilled, but Callie does give him one last mission. She sends him back to Cannon to retrieve Gamzee, who is taken to this version of Earthsea to begin his long, overdone, cringeworthy redemption arc that is very clearly bullshit. 
Basically, everyone but John falls for it, and he takes to secretly texting Terezi, who's returned to the game session to search for Vriska, for emotional support, even as he embarks on a pretty serious relationship with Roxy. John begins to feel like his decision not to validate canonical events has rendered all this somehow pointless. Ditto Dirk, who cannot stand their lack of narrative significance and withdraws from social life and by proxy cancels Jane's presidential plans. Distressed, she goes to Jake for comfort. They get drunk together, but when he rebuffs her romantic overtures, she uses the trickster lollipop to get him into bed. Afterward, when he says he feels taken advantage of, she pressures him into a relationship with her. Meanwhile, Rose's illness vanishes. She and Kanaya live happily, tending to the mother grub and adopt a young grub whom they name Vriska, after their former friend she so much resembles. Jade pressures Dave and Karkat into an explicit thruple arrangement, which ultimately irritates both boys. Dave seeks out Dirk for advice, but discovers that Dirk has dramatically completed suicide by hanging himself from a bell tower rather than exist in a reality wholly divorced from canon. At the funeral, John offers to retcon Dirk's death, but Dave doesn't want that. At any rate, John realizes he can no longer use his retcon powers. Roxy proposes to John, and he accepts. Time passes. John and Roxy get married, and Roxy becomes pregnant. John continues to secretly text Terezi, who is still wandering around the void of the game session. Jade, Dave, and Karkat's relationship also deteriorates, and Jane adds Gamzee to her life with Jake. She has continued to accumulate power and wants the government to implement anti-troll policies, resulting in tension among the gods of Earthsea. Jane and Jake have a son, whom they name Tavros. Jade decides she, Dave, and Karkat should also have a baby, but then suddenly a dead teen version of Jade falls out of the sky. This is obviously the version of Jade who perished in the fight against Lord English back in the meat narrative, unless you read Candy first, in which case it isn't at all obvious. While gathered to discuss the strange occurrence, Karkat gets pissed at Jane's xenophobia and breaks up with Jade and Dave. A funeral is held for teen Jade, during which Aradia and Sullux appear. Roxy is delivering the eulogy and goes into labor. Teen Jade's corpse reanimates, possessed by god-tier Calliope, who explains she devoured the green sun and now exists consubstantially with the black hole this has created. Everything happening here is happening inside that singularity, which she provides as an existential ground for, as well as protection from, the world outside of it, where Dirk has been consolidating his power. More time passes. John and Roxy have a son, Harry Anderson Egbert. Earth C becomes politically unstable, as troll ghosts from the game session are being sucked into Calliope's singularity and raining from the sky, setting off Jane's zeal for troll population control. A rebel group emerges, led by Karkat, who gets a cool eye patch. Mina, recently enlivened from the meat narrative, shows up and joins him. Meanwhile, Gamzee has become a sort of religious leader who gives bizarre public performances about redemption and breast milk, which he is constantly drinking thanks to his supplier, Jane. John begins to suspect that Gamzee is grooming Jane and Jake's son, Tavros. He plans to steal Tavros away, but while trying to do so during his son's birthday party, he is caught by everyone. A confrontation ensues, and John leaves. He talks with Terezi one final time, but ultimately assumes she's finally died alone in the empty session. Though she has in fact met the John from the meat narrative, and left with him. Ten years later, Harry Anderson Egbert is now dating Vriska Mariam Lalonde, who is now dating Tavros Crocker. The background noise of their lives is constant political oppression and military action, and they dream of joining Karkat's resistance. Meanwhile, John and Roxy are divorced. Jade and Dave get married. John decides nothing matters anymore and is extremely depressed. 
Jane learns that Dad died in attack by Karkat's forces, and she declares open war against him, exiling Gamzee from her life-slash-bedroom when he objects to her anti-troll agenda. Rose and Kanaya openly ally with the Resistance, and Rose thanks John for allowing her to have a life where she was happy, even if it is supposedly inconsequential. Vriska, who was knocked into the black hole during the final battle with Lord English in the meat narrative, finally falls from the sky and is incredibly pissed to be shunted so wholly aside at her moment of glory. She runs into Gamzee and they hate fuck in the bushes before she kills him. Vriska, Mariam Lalan discovers them and is embarrassed by her older namesake, but they chat about being themselves. Lil Vriska reveals she stole John's phone, allowing Big Vriska to send Terezi a message, although it might be a too little too late. John goes back to his childhood home, where Jake and Tavros are now living because Jane has become unbearable. John tells Roxy he feels like he's doomed everyone to life in a nonsensical hellscape, and Roxy tells him not to be so full of himself. She explains how, though she knows her life might have gone differently in many ways, she is now the person that she is, in the place and time that she is, and she is willing to find happiness and satisfaction in that. Dave and Jade join Karkat's Rebellion and search the Earth for ancient artifacts. Dave discovers the ruins of the Oval Office, where he activates a holographic projection of a particularly famous and charismatic former president, who has been expecting him. This dashing politician reveals that he too was aware of Spurb, and worked tirelessly but secretly throughout his life to make sure things went according to plan. He exposits the nature of the hope aspect, which he would know a thing or two about, and convinces Dave to ascend to ultimate selfhood, revealing a robot body prepared for just this case. Meanwhile, God-tier Calliope, who is still possessing Teen Jade's corpse, senses the imminent arrival of her brother. She explains to Aradia that their confining reality is a story, or series of stories, and because of this, they are weak to particular parties who attempt to assert narratorial control. A pernicious aspect of this is the way certain speakers might try to assume voices that are not their own while secretly working nefarious designs on their listeners. On the other hand, Calliope sees herself as working to maintain narratorial disinterest and neutrality at the expense of harmful agendas, like the ones Dirk is enacting outside the purview of her singularity. Soon, she will set off to do battle with him. Lord English's body falls from the sky, and the Calliope-possessed Jade moves to devour him, just as we saw in the meat postscript. The candy postscript diverts us back to that narrative, to a ship flying through interstellar space. On board, Rose works as Dirk's robot maid. Terezi wanders the hallways elsewhere. As the ship approaches a new habitable planet, Rose contacts Dirk to let him know, and they prepare to cultivate it over the coming millennia to host what they believe will be the most important spurb session of all time. Michael and Cameron. This is still an email, by the way. It was really weird that it started out like that, and it doesn't address us until, until right here, but uh, mm -hmm. this is where it does that. Mm -hmm. Was it in italics or something maybe before? Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Michael and Cameron. I've been waiting a long time to write this recap slash introduction slash farewell message. I've watched from afar, and might I add eagerly, since you first began your undertaking. With every partisode, I've learned more about the circumstances of our contemporary media ecology and what it means to be a person living within a pseudo-participatory capitalist consumer culture under conditions of highly networked digital communication, self-documentation, and surveillance. I also think, in listening to your conversations, I've learned a lot about myself. For while we live in an age where almost everyone has a post-history, it does turn out that we are not, as folks like to say back in the 90s when I was teaching at the University of Chicago Law School, post-history. 
To echo the sentiments of a very smart article on the Vice website I once read, if the flexibility and capacity of Homestuck teaches us something, perhaps it is that the world we live in is still, always, in the process of being made, and there is yet more work to do. As someone who is no stranger to being in the public eye, I know the phrase I'm about to utter risks turning me into a pure meme, a container devoid of relation to my personal actions and positions. But let me be clear. Though the work remains ongoing, our achievements should not go unremarked when we attain them. If you are reading this, it means you have finally finished Homestuck Made This World, and you have a complete 13-episode podcast. I am so, so proud of you. Sincerely, Barack Obama. Oh my god. And then underneath that, in, 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 in quotation marks, this is kind of odd, quote, the Homestuck president, unquote. What? Jesus, I can't believe it. Yeah. Wow. Did you say anything about why he didn't close Guantanamo Bay? Uh, the email Is just that... self-destructed. Oh, got it. Um, so there, there were probably were there were there a couple other paragraphs in there. Uh, I, uh, yeah, sure, there there could have been. Um, I guess uh, it's something for the fans to speculate about. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I really, I, I've always been curious about that about that pledge to close it down and uh-huh. then uh, just totally not doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's really weird that we we taught the guy who like signed off on Prism about uh surveillance, but you know, take what I what I can get. I think he had a lot going on. I don't think he read every document that came across his desk. He's got I mean, you know, he just finished up his own major podcast with the the boss, you know. <laughs> Isn't it funny that a guy who was president has to call somebody else the boss? Uh-huh. Isn't that funny? It's it's so funny. Mm-hmm. I wonder what uh, he thought about uh the insane clown posse becoming president as well. <laughs> you know, I wonder if he thought that was scathing criticism of the office or, you yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wish he had, had said more, but no, just uh, sent that anonymous email and now he's gone. But hey, uh, he also didn't put us on his year end list, but I think that's probably because he considers us a little too like refined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, well, Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, we're not we're not for everybody, you know. Uh, he he's he's telling like all these NPR listeners, you know, what right. to check out, right? Uh-huh. Like, that's not. I don't want them in here. <laughs> They're gonna be uh, telling me about the pop culture happy hour. No thanks. <laughs> Political gab fest. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Political shit show. More like yo. Ooh, yeah. Ah. Mm. Yep. Well, that's it. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> Good up. Uh. Uh. So you know, we we often talk about old comedy on here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like comedy of the era mm-hmm. that we uh, that we did. And uh, a couple nights ago, I'm scrolling through a uh, streaming service, and you know what film I saw? Mm, no, Step Brothers. Oh wow! You know it's from like 2009 or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, is it is it still funny? Uh huh. It's only 90 minutes. You know, mm-hmm. it actually, it might be like 88 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, let's check that out. And it opens with with a quotation. And it's families is where our nation finds hope, where wings take dream. And it is it is asserted that it is it is by an it, it you know, we get the the credit actual quotation from George W. Bush. Mhm. Uh, you remember when you can open a movie like that? <laughs> just like, look at this zany thing that George W. Bush said. Mm-hmm. 
that's where this Obama stuff comes from. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know what I mean? Like, it, <laughs> like it, at its core, it's like, isn't it funny that our presidents exist? Mm-hmm. And, or, like, in the case of Bush, it's like, and is uh, perhaps the most incompetent person to ever hold the office, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also wildly destructive, right? It's like this one-two punch that just, uh, you know, hits you in the gut. Right. Uh, but with Obama, it's like, isn't he cool? Right. Isn't like, it, the joke is that he's cool. Right. Isn't it awesome that this guy exists? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he, he he releases a playlist at the end of the year, right? And, of course, we've all had to live through uh, years <laughs> of the next president after that. And uh, all the funny jokes. I, mm-hmm. I So I don't, you know, I don't watch SNL, but uh-huh. I, did not real, I did not realize that SNL is still, like, every week running jokes about him. Like there's a there's a fucking guy on staff who that's his like big thing is just doing an impression. Oh yeah, it's the guy. I mean, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about. I haven't seen any, any of this, but I know there's like a guy who actually does a frankly like a really good Trump impression. But that's all they have him there for. Yeah, and so I'll listen to like podcasts that are a little bit more. It's like podcasts I like go outside and I'm like cut and brush to. You know, it's like mm-hmm. not not stuff I really got to listen to too hard. And uh, and they'll be talking about like, wasn't it funny when he was doing that impression? And I just think that's where we are still. That's mm-hmm. that's that's our life. So that's all to say. Thanks to uh, former president. No, actually, I don't think it's former. Right? It's once you are president, you're always president. Whatever. I don't know. I believe so. I that's believe how Trump if, would if, like it. Well, <laughs> I think that is the case because mm-hmm. uh, you know Jimmy Carter doesn't live very far from me, and he is still President Carter. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you if you're around him occasionally, uh, I've I've not been co-located with President Carter, but people around me are are every now and again co-located in a in a boardroom or whatnot with President Carter because he's mm-hmm. around in mm-hmm. this area, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I believe it's still President. Whatever. It after. would be really awkward to like have to re- like hello former President Carter. Like every time you meet him, it's like a slight like. <laughs> Right. You're really past the definitive moment of your life. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, yeah, you just have to do something more important, like King of the Fair. You know right. what I mean? Like but- Butter Queen Carter, you know? <laughs> oh, doing anything you can to get out of these epilogues, huh? I'm 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 trying. You feel it? You feel <laughs> yeah, me? Uh, you feel the stretch of uh, the paradox space of other literally anything else a human being can talk about pulling you away from <laughs> <laughs> the the gravity well that is this horse shit that we had to read. Yeah. Um. I mean, maybe I should just give you some time to like lay out your thoughts because I think uh, your your negative reaction is not. Um, unusual in response to this like the as I, I, you know i want to i want to uh vent my spleen i want to car cat out okay you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. but i won't okay because that's not no one wants to actually some people do want to hear that but <laughs> it's not productive and i could do that on my own time mm-hmm. you know what i mean i can complain about it. let me let me let me say the things i think that are good about the epilogues and then you can guide our discussion and i'll okay. complain at that at that juncture okay about okay that. uh the uh here's the things i like I like the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, I, and I like the kind of big conceptual move involved here, right? Which is like, there's an intro that is shared among them, and then there's a choice, and then you explore both choices. Mm-hmm. And that each of those choices hones in on a thing that seems to be very grabby for the uh, 
the audience, right? Mm-hmm. That's cool. And they talk to one another, meaning that like these two narrative universes, right? This, this decision fork crosses mm-hmm. over. Like, I think that's cool. I think that's interesting. Um, uh, I wish they crossed over more, to be frank. And and I know I do know that people uh, in the Discord were talking about how uh, a, a couple people were talking about how if you like at the chapter breaks, because they're, you know, each one there's meat and candy. And then like within them, there's nine or something like chapter breaks. Mm hmm eight, nine, something like that. And they were saying if you bounce back and forth at the, those marks, maybe you get some interesting stuff there. Although reading them kind of linearly one after the other, I read meat first and then candy second. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see where the things were skipping back and forth. You know, it wasn't, uh, I'm sure there's resonances there, but it's not like it was like, wow, I can't believe how these two things touch one another. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really cool. I think the... I I guess I'm of two minds of this, uh, perhaps ironically. <laughs> the Caliborn and Calliope split dominates Act Six, mm-hmm. and and it fundamentally is the you know that's the meat and candy split here, right? It's it's kind mm-hmm. of reworked into a different thing, but meat is action and plot, and candy is like the characters pinging off one another in scenes of two people that get resolved in some way. There's, like, character beats that are in there. Mm-hmm. I think that's, like, conceptually very interesting. I think mm-hmm. what's done here is not interesting. <laughs> I, I don't enjoy reading it. Um, I, I, don't, I think that the structure overwhelms the content here, right? Uh, right. You know, uh, uh, in, in, uh, the, uh, in Deleuze and Guattari terms, right, expression overwhelms content, right? Content mm-hmm. determines style and things like that. Um, but the the way that it happens ultimately like overwhelms the way it's put together for me. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to be like, wow, this is what what a beautiful crystalline structure here. <laughs> I like the idea too of like fiddling with canon. I think that this is a cool, um, alluring thing. Which is uh, if if John can go back and fiddle and tinker, mm-hmm. why wouldn't he go back and fiddle and tinker? Mm-hmm. Right, I can understand how that would be the thing, and also I like the payoff for the never-ending story. Right, like the payoff for the never-ending story, which I felt like was present all throughout six. It really comes into its own here in the epilogues, which is like, what if the story ended and it was uncompelling, and you had to try to get out of the story mm-hmm. or resolve it in some way? Right, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and at the end of the never-ending story, we get a very explicit thing. It's like, hey, don't do that. That's yes. bad for you. It's bad uh-huh. to do that. And that's not, that's kind of here, I guess, although it is played in perhaps the goofiest way I've read in a work of fiction. <laughs> just, just truly in like the, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. Like it, I am, I am underwhelmed by like what occurs in a way that I found shocking because uh, for all any complaint I've ever had about Homestuck, uh, and especially rug pulls, deflationary moves, right? These methods that Hussey has had of um, taking action and thrills and kind of undermining them in some way. Mm-hmm. I think at, at the end of the day, like the payoff tended to be worth it. Mm-hmm. 
You know, and and the the kick out as we talked about in the last episode, right? Like the kick out at the end of Homestuck kind of works. It's like, hey, we're I, we're not going to play in the story anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not going to talk to Caliborn on Snapchat, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and that to me is like cool. Like you can go write your fanfic and you can do whatever you want. And you can still en- engage with these characters, but this train that we are on is off the rails, mm-hmm. and you can like play in the wreckage now, right? <laughs> and that seems so appropriate to me. Um, and made everything go nicely, and I didn't need to know what happened to Vriska, right? And mm-hmm. I like the idea that Terezi is, like, flying around in Paradox Space trying to figure things out, right? Like, th- these are good, very genre-form plot beats to end on, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that's okay. Kind of the end of Animorphsy a little bit, right? Where it's <laughs> yeah. just like, hey, life happens, and, like, here's a nice ending point, but an ending point is is just that, right? It's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyone who's ever written anything or done a big project, like, say, a 13-episode uh, multi-year project where the Red Homestuck, you have to recognize that you cannot comprehensively speak to everything in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. You just, the thing is the thing. you got to choose an ending point. Mm-hmm. Th- this just seems to, like, uh, be like, no, 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 no. It, like, it's like we you hear the, uh, you know, it's the final crescendo of the symphony. Bum, bum, bum. And lights go down. Yeah, and then like a little gremlin comes on stage and goes, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! I have my own!" and like starts like scratching on a, the xylophone and like starts <laughs> banging on a drum and like starts like doing the like uh like uh that thing we saw from the Karamazov brothers uh in our <laughs> other show, Game Study Study Buddies, uh-huh. uh where they were like banging on uh, electronic instruments on their bodies that didn't really work very well. Uh huh. <laughs> yes. It's like it's like that. Oh my god. And then I had to listen to that for another nine and a half hours, right? After that wonderful crescendo that perhaps I could have heard more, but it ended the thing that I was interested in. So that's my general thoughts on the epilogues. I think that they... I think everything about the idea is good. I think what I had to read about was mostly bad, although there's some really fun parts in it. And Carcat gets the spotlight in both in a way that is probably undeserved. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> why is Carcat the essentially the main character of most of these? Um, just in terms of word count, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also gets a lot of very funny things to say. And Dave gets <laughs> to be pretty cool too, right? Like, th- there mm-hmm. are some parts I like that are character based here that are fun to read, um, and that are that feel like for lack of a better word, classic Homestuck, right? Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff, too, that's, like, playing on... I don't know. It's playing out some of the latent ideas from the comic that were better left unplayed out. Like, yeah. could not give less of a shit about Crocker Corp and mm-hmm. Jane's, like, destiny to be, you know, an evil thing. Like, why is that still... Why is that still here? That is so... I don't... Who is that for? Who is reading this this work? Who is reading thousands of pages like, Jesus Christ, I just really wish that there had been more Crocker Corp in the thing. <laughs> oh, by the way, let me... let me A uh, little aside here. I made some peanut butter cookies that I got for 60 cents. Uh-huh. They were on hyper sale at, uh-huh. at the old Kroger. They were Betty Crocker. Mm-hmm. I had to put an egg in there. I had to put a little bit of oil. Mm-hmm. Put them in the oven. Fucking delicious. I get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I were going to choose a big corporate entity to, you know, uh, you know, potentially be exported to the, the flower mines or whatever it is. Right. Exiled yeah. to the flower mines. <laughs> Maybe Crocker Corp's the way to go. But anyway, that's my big <laughs> thoughts. That's all I got. Yeah. Li- liked it in concept. Hated reading it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
I also like it in concept, and I think I hate reading it less than you do. Well, I mean, not not think. I'm I'm pretty sure. I think I hate reading it less than a lot of people did. Well, you uh, it's also like you know you've had some time to sit with it. Yeah, you've written about it. You know, you've had a little bit of like academic objectivity on the thing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I just sat and read over the course of like three days the whole thing. Uh-huh. It, it very fra- and I finished it less than twelve hours ago, <laughs> so it's very fra- it's like a you know it's a fresh wound, <laughs> right? Right. In terms of things I had to sit through. Hmm. Uh. Yeah. And I mean, this is th- the the thing that really starts this podcast, right? Uh, going all the way back to the beginning to before the beginning. Um. Is the article that I wrote for Vice that I mentioned mm-hmm. probably in the first partisode, I think. Um, that was how Homestuck defined what it means to be a fan online. Uh, and that was written a couple weeks after the epilogues uh, went up online. Um, and uh, uh, Austin Walker, uh, who was the uh, editor-in-chief at um, Waypoint at the time, was kind enough to, like, uh, he saw it through to, to publication. So uh, thank you, Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, when I first encountered the epilogues, uh, I think there were two notable things. One is I had, you know, uh, detached from the fan community for quite a while. Um, you know, I'd stopped reading the something awful thread. I, you know, like like you said, like, yeah, Homestuck was over. Like, and, and the ending message of Homestuck was, well, that's done. Uh, have fun, like, playing with kind of the ideas that this has left you with. Um, and... Uh, I remember when the thing drops, uh, or rather, actually, how it works out is that the prologue posts on uh, April 13th of 2019, and then a week later on uh, 420, haha, uh, both meat and candy drop. So I remember I was like at a, uh, I was at a conference, I was at a Shakespeare conference when this happened, and like in between panels, I was just like sitting in the hotel lobby on my phone reading it. And the entire time I was thinking, like, this is incredible, and it also is validating to me personally, and also it seems so wildly ill-advised to do any of this stuff in the way that it's doing it. Um, (laughs) uh, So I think it's incredible, like, as you say, because of um, sort of like what it's doing, what the form of it is. the the transition of Homestuck into a book, uh, like a book like format, rather, because, you know, I'm initially I'm reading it on my phone mm-hmm. is really fascinating. So um, people are up there and they're being like, uh, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, bleep, 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 bleep. And you're you're reading about uh, whether or not Dave and Carcat are boyfriends. Yes. Yeah. Basically. And you're you're grinning up a storm and they think, oh, he loves Puck. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> little Michael's out there and he's loving Puck and you're grinning <laughs> and, you're, and you're reading about. Uh, you know, the deferred smooching. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, 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 it wasn't lost on me that I was like, I, I'm just like sitting here surrounded by a bunch of other Shakespeare academics and I'm just like reading Homestuck on my phone. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. It's that, it's that meme. Yeah. You know, no, no one knows I'm reading Homestuck. <laughs> right. And they're all thinking we can tell he's reading Homestuck. <laughs> he's sweating too much to not be reading Homestuck. He's, he's sweating so much. He must be reading the Homestuck epilogues. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so, like, that's happening, uh, and then just, like, the form of it, like, what's actually going on, um, 
you know, by taking Homestuck and working it backwards into kind of like a book form or rather forwards, right? We, we don't need to set up a kind of um, progression of, of media in that way. But that's that's mm-hmm. the thing that is interesting to me, right? Uh, first and foremost, as a person who studies like media and media forms, um, the ways that uh, this thing... Uh, takes the textual elements of Homestuck. Uh, we've, you know, dispensed with uh, uh, the pictorial, right? No images here. Um, yep. uh, the way that it uses, like, the text colors, right? All of the characters, like, the, the character dialogue is still presented as kind of like chat logs or rather dialogue logs as we get by the end of Act 6. Mm-hmm. And all of the characters are still speaking in, like, different colored text. Uh, and then there's, like, chunks of narratorial text, that shows up as just uh, both uh, uh, sets, right? Uh, depending on or either one you start with, uh, it's just you know normal typeface, uh, black typeface, uh, and then of course the payoff here uh, in Meet uh, is when Dirk reveals that he has actually been controlling the narrative and he turns the text, the narratorial text, orange, and it's like ah damn, that's really good. Um, and of mm-hmm. course that also is pulling directly out of like the the object of the never ending story. Uh, mm-hmm. with the green and red text. Uh, so kind of how that works. And then like the fact that we get like dueling narrators who have two different colors of text, like that's really cool. Um, and then of course the other thing that's really fascinating that it's doing, or at least, you know, from my perspective is that um, it's doing the thing that Homestuck has always done, uh, which is taking the outside and shoving it in, right? Taking the thing outside the story and just shoving it into the story and saying, this is the story now. Um, so, uh, and of course, uh, as I've already talked about extensively, uh, Homestuck proper for me was a thing that was defined by being there for the long haul and kind of the, the seven years of my own life that passed, uh, while reading that comic and watching the comic as it was shoving the world outside into itself, um, uh, being able to like trace those developments in like online culture and sort of in my own life and like the broader culture around me uh, through the things that were happening in the comic. Uh, and so, you know, the this story is filled with like uh, it's 2019, uh, you know, we're a couple years into the Trump presidency. Uh, this is a point when uh, I think, you know, people are still very frequently hashtagging abolish ice on uh, Twitter. Um, so there's this real sense of like the world outside the comic being shoved into the comic, you know, like what happens, uh, to these characters, uh, in a world that has become, or like, you know, the, the world in the story, uh, changes to reflect again, the world outside the story is another way of putting that. Um, but then the, the epilogues also feel very validating for me, uh, because, uh, they basically prove me right. (laughs) In that the way that I ended with Homestuck was like, oh, yeah, like the the point of this story is that like Homestuck needs to end. Caliborn's the guy who wants Homestuck to loop forever, to loop indefinitely, and that's bad. And like the the moment of triumph is uh, being able to like sever that loop, right, and and head off in a new direction. And uh, thematically, one of the big things about uh, the epilogues sort of big picture is that uh, starting up the Homestuck machine again is a mistake. Right. It's a thing that a villain does. And it's a thing that like sort of a a self-obsessed villain would do uh, for uh, like what he would say were like good purposes, uh, but is really all about kind of like maintaining whatever ego he has. Right. 
right? So, uh, and then it also jives with a lot of these really cool themes uh, that we've excavated from the main comic throughout, which is that, like, narrative is a terror, right? <laughs> um, right. Like, narrative returning to these characters' lives is horrifying, right? It has horrible consequences. Um, and uh there's this like the the thing with the bifurcated structure that is also very interesting uh is that meat uh is as you said kind of like plotty plot plot stuff and then candy is positioned as uh like character moments uh uh character beats and, and that sort of thing um without action right right you know, because there's this this way that john keeps being like why is everyone acting so weird? And we're we're given to understand that everyone is acting so weird because they are like uh metaphysically prevented from moving beyond just talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Like they they are prevented from doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um it, that that's actually much more complicated in the actual text itself, right? Because like plenty of people are doing stuff. Um uh, but it always seems to be off-screen. Uh it's always in the gaps. You know, the things that we read are conversations about it and in the aftermath r- rather than it happening. So, for example, we get all that stuff about, like, uh, uh, Gamzee kind of guiding the life of Harry Anderson. Uh-huh, right. Right? It, but that mostly happens in, like, time skips. Yeah, in Tavros, <laughs> yeah. And, but that mostly doesn't happen on, you know, quote-unquote, on screen, right? What we get are conversations that talk about it having happened. Right. Um, and a kind of knowing wink-wink of uh, what we talked about around the time skip in the transition period mm-hmm. during the one yard of travel. Right. Right. And um, this is interesting to me because, again, I had been reading Homestuck for a long time. And so it resumes uh, stuff that Hussey had talked about in uh, like Form Spring and in various uh, arenas of author commentary about how, uh, you know, this uh, 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 most of this conversation I recall happening around Gamzee's murder spree back in Act 5, Act 2, this this uh, kind of stance that Homestuck is a story. It's got a directionality to it, right? It's got a point that it's heading toward, and that means that there is going to be uh, developments and changes in ways that uh, in in this specific case, right, means that, like, Gamzee isn't going to be the fun uh, stoner clown buddy forever, right? Uh, the yeah. the directionality of plot, right, the fact that things need to happen uh, means that Gamzee's going to become murderous and he's going to trim down the cast because uh, this story cannot continue forever with this many characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Hussey also, in, in kind of that same breath, says... Uh, you know, the fandom imagines uh, or like, you know, the, the fandom preferred version of all this is like a, a, a sitcom, right? Just like an endless sitcom where everyone kind of is just hanging out, coming into the room, saying something funny, leaving the room. And there's mm-hmm. no real uh, uh, progress or development. Um, everyone just kind of lives in stasis. Mm-hmm. Quick, um, Homestuck characters as Seinfeld. <laughs> Go. Well, uh, Kramer is the Gamzee. Right. Um... Carcats George. Yes. Um, I guess Elaine is kind of a Terezi. Sure. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Agent of Chaos. Uh huh. Um, Jerry's really hard to pin down. It's true. Maybe Jerry's just Jerry. Yeah. You know, maybe there's no equivalence. Maybe you just have Jerry Seinfeld in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's (laughs) three trolls uh, and Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Uh That's that's fine. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Newman is uh, that's John. (laughs) yes okay Okay, great great. all right continue um so uh you know the 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 meat candy division uh 
seems to resume some of this in terms of like what's going on. Meat is being plotty plot plot and candy being um, like character beats, uh, sort of like things, uh, characters like sort of unpacking things that have happened sort of post fact. Um, the other thing that comes up is that uh, candy and meat are the only things that cherubs eat. Uh, now we've gotten some like comments about this, both like more recently and at the beginning uh, where uh People have been like, well, I don't understand why in Homestuck Made This World they aren't talking about candy and meat from the beginning because clearly candy and meat is like how how you're supposed to understand this because that's where it ends with the epilogues. Hmm. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Fascinating that the future must therefore impact the past. uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Other than being like absolutely contrary to like the method of this show, uh, one Mm -hmm. of the things the method of this show is like trying to do is show how... uh, Things get positioned in the present that are then uh, you are asked to, like, use them retroactively. And, like, what does that buy the object that you're using them with? So, like, meat and candy uh, being the things that cherubs like. First off, that's, like, my primary association. I think that's interesting. Uh, But Mm -hmm. then in the Homestuck books that Hussey uh, had started publishing through Viz, they'd gotten up to Act 4, which they didn't Mm -hmm. get up to when Hussey was self-publishing. Uh, mm-hmm. on the and if if listeners remember, we were reading from them every now and again up to that point, and mm-hmm. we haven't talked about them in like half a year because right. of that. <laughs> uh, in uh, uh, the book three, which is on Act Four, uh, during the uh, pages that cover Jack when during his first ascension, uh, here is what Hussey writes mm-hmm. in uh, uh, the commentary there. Jack Ascend, if memory serves, was posted exactly one year from Homestuck's start date. What an absurd amount of content I produced in that year, especially when you consider the animation stuff. Good thing I slowed down after that, right? No, I kept doing the exact same thing for the next several years. Yikes, sounds bad. So about this animation. I think this one marks the start of Homestuck's trend thereafter of dropping exceptionally violent, high-octane, game-changing animations out of nowhere. There are so many like this from here on, right up to the end of Act 5. Only then does the number sort of taper off. But from this point on, I just started shoveling more and more red meat into the story's maw. This stretch is where I started to get a feel for this type of sensationalistic storytelling content as something I'd later code mostly for my own internal purposes as meat in the meat-candy binary of storycraft theory. Uh, I shouldn't talk about this yet, though. It's too soon. However, no more books are coming out. This is never talked about, uh, at least at the present moment, never talked about uh, more extensively in the commentary because that commentary is not coming to be. Wow, what a cliffhanger. Right. Uh, but anyway, uh, just to get some timeline stuff on that, that uh, uh, commentary is published in 2018. Um, uh, and this is where Hussey is like really talking about it as a storytelling device. Prior to that, uh, it's been, as I said, the thing that the cherubs eat. Uh, it's a term that shows up a couple times in the main comic. The first time uh, it is mentioned by Caliborn in Act 6, Act 3, when he's uh, talking with Dirk about like what kinds of uh, uh, pairings of the friends that he wants to make um, uh, pornography of. Uh, and he ends up not wanting uh, uh, what he calls pumpkin patch, which is Dirk and Jake, because their colors make like a pumpkin with, you know, like a, a it's orange and green, right? A pumpkin Jesus. with like leafy greens. Yeah. Right. Um, I got it. Yep. And pumpkin, pumpkin patch. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And so, Great. so Caliborn says, uh, you know, I don't like he doesn't want to see that, which is, of course, is kind of like the meta joke about his weird of uh, uh, like reactions against like various ships and things. Uh, but then what he says is, I don't want to uh, spend time in the pumpkin patch and then quote meat or candy. That's what's good. The game is over. So this is also a joke about not wanting to eat your vegetables. Uh, yeah. And and those are the only two things that are available to them right. for eternity, right? Like uh-huh. uh, Caliborn and Calliope kind of come into existence and the only thing available to them as given to them by the the yet again kicked out weird objective narrator, right? Like the, the person who is, the or the figure rather, who is like chaining Caliborn to the the mouse pad and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that That is all that has been offered to mm-hmm. Caliborn and Calliope is meat or candy. Right, right. And that's, uh, uh, their their room is filled with meat and candy. It's constantly a mess. Uh, Arania, during her big uh, cherub exposition, where she talks about how the, the trolls were trapped in their room, and, and she doesn't say it, but visually we see it, uh, you know, raised by Gamzee, who provided them with all mm-hmm. this stuff. Uh, they were right. left with everything a young cherub could ever want. Meat, candy, computers, a lifetime supply of special stardust, and of course, their magic MacGuffins. Um, she also finishes this by saying that the, of course, the children were very spoiled. Um, right. So, uh, what I think is fascinating about the meat candy binary here is that it is, uh, again, kind of a, a, a weird critique of the audience, right? Like, mm-hmm, yeah, right. Like it, it certainly emerges that way. Yes. <laughs> right. Like these two audience figures who have like linear ways of reading the plot which you know i i i put forward way back you know these are both equally critical and negative depictions of Mm -hmm. the people who are reading this thing right uh and as you pointed out at the time well maybe there's a little bit of finger on the scale and i think that is true by the end right like Mm -hmm. calliope gets to be the more good of the two right and Mm -hmm. certainly positioned as beneficial but also the epilogue's kind of like really put Calliope under the uh, the microscope a little bit mm-hmm. at the beginning of Candy in a way that I actually really liked. Um, but yeah, absolutely, right? It's like you stand in... It, the, the audience figures, one of many audience figures, gets to stand in here and they are given two options, meat or candy, and choosing either of them, and in fact loving either of them, is uh, treated as like, you, you know, you're bad. Mm-hmm. You're a big goof for doing that. How dare you do that? And then let me publish some epilogues that are only those two things. <laughs> and that's where uh, to move from like feeling validated to like feeling like this is so ill-advised. Uh, like this is the same Homestuck maneuver, right? Uh, yes, it's like, yeah. what what does the audience want? Meat and candy. Well, here's all the meat you could want and here's all the candy you could want. We're going to have them together. And both of these stories, uh, you know, they're, they're, there's another version, I should say, right? There's another way of thinking about how this could have turned out where like, uh, you know, meat, meat is narrative, meat is the terror of plot and everything gets mm-hmm. really sad there. And candy is, in fact, just like fun uh, hangout times forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And quite uh, uh, deliberately, this thwarts that distinction, right? It deconstructs the binary by showing that like meat and candy are, in fact, interrelated. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that like candy is basically this like purely passive timeline where things from meat shoot over and cause stuff to happen, which of course is like the uh, uh, like main comic fandom relationship. Like people can come mm-hmm. up with all the things that they want in fandom, but there's all this stuff raining down from the sky from the main narrative uh, that then the fandom like has to deal with and sort of grapple with and like grow around. Mm-hmm. Um, which gets figured here explicitly as canonicity. Yes. Right, like the the introduction here within the the meat story is, uh, is John will go into canon. Mm-hmm. He will, John he will go into the things that are true about the Homestuckiverse mm-hmm. and will alter them in order to get resolution, can, canonical resolution of the stuff that was frankly just avoided at the end mm-hmm. of the mainline comic. And that will have effects on everyone after the fact. And importantly, right, like the uh, canonicity uh, will push your characters in your Candyverse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll push the characters you're playing with in directions you might not like mm-hmm. um, in, in ways that are bad. And, but it is done, which is like everything about that is interesting, right? Like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. The way it's done is not interesting <laughs> to me, but I, you know, I th- this is the part that I do think is really fascinating that that Hussey's doing the meta move again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, take the thing that is about the structure of the comic and the writing of the comic, and then put it in the story itself. You know, mm-hmm. there is no meta thing about Homestuck that, that will not be refolded into the narrative. That's something we've been saying for. 5,000 pages, I think, at this point, truly, <laughs> actually, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, John's body is put into a capsule log wallet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, which was one of the first meta moves, right? Like, all the way back. And that is still being, uh, that you know, one of the first meta moves ab- about the inventory system that get, then gets flo- folded into plot critical stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That is still even present here. You know, like, the meta moves from the very beginning of the comic are showing up here again and this is yet another one um so you know and dirk kills himself in one alternate universe right mm-hmm. in candy to exert more influence on meat mm-hmm. you know there there there's a way that some of the characters are aware of that because of their ultimate selves mm-hmm. their ultimate self michael ultimate selves ultimate self but I, i'm sorry i interrupted did you, you know that like there's a level of power beyond a god tier I've been in the I've been in the, the the hyper chamber getting ready to become my ultimate self. <laughs> uh, Here I am. I'm I'm the big I'm the big me. Mm-hmm. This is all uh, like any everything about the ultimate self is just like debates about Luke versus Luke. <laughs> like which is the more real Luke? Right. None um, of them. They're all fake. <laughs> no, they're not real. They're not real people. Right. Right. No, and I mean the comic kind of like gets to that. Not not really gets to yeah. that, but um I think tries to get to that during the bit where so the other thing you should know is that the meat uh narrative for a, a large portion of it is narrated in the typical homestuck you fashion. Like you wake mm-hmm. up, you walk over here, you do this, that, and the other. Uh Candy is entirely third person talking about John. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, like reflects a kind of, um, what the main comic was versus like, I think not universally, obviously there was fan fiction that, uh, took the, the, the second person address, but like fan fiction that, uh, treats the characters as things to be observed and described rather than the, the weird, like parser conceit of, um, the, uh, the, the comic itself. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's a bit where like after Dirk has commandeered the meat narrative that he, uh, uh, talks about how like, you know, 
you as a, a like a part of a sentence, right, is like an empty signifier. Like I can like you can use language to make you mean anyone because you can write a sentence that uh uh, addresses you and anyone who reads that sentence will understand themselves as being addressed by that sentence because of the way language works. Right? Well, I've read this little book called Bright Lights, Big City. Uh-huh. And Jay McInerney writes about his mother dying. Uh-huh. And it is all about you, but my mother didn't die. <laughs> In that book. Yes, no, yeah. So I'm a little suspicious of the uh, application case of the you. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, uh, I, I don't mean that literally, but more in the right, sense no, of yeah, like, yeah, right, right, like what that does is it um it generates a sense of immediacy. Right. Of course. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what the you does. Like by addressing the reader, by uh, doing the second person hail, uh, you you generate a sense of immediacy, which is to say a sense of um, not just speed, right, or quickness, although those are a part of it, but um, a sense of uh, less of a boundary, Right. Between mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, the interlocutor or the reader and and the object itself. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm goofing as a yeah. as a device. Uh -huh. That's what it's it, what's intended for. And that's why it is so hated. Right. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, the the reason I'm, uh, you know, kicking off for the <laughs> Bright Lights Big City is that, that, you know, that book is part of the, you know, the literary brats and all that stuff. People can read about that, I guess, if they want to. But. Uh, it did really well. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of launches McInerney into being part of the literati mm -hmm. of, of the time the late 80s early 90s and uh it's written entirely in the second person and is one of very few books to have been done so at the time uh and is is critiqued because it's like a gimmick right mm -hmm. and, and the gimmick is immediacy right. right like um and by the time you get to homestuck right like number one that you know the gimmick's been run into the ground so you can experiment with it all you want it's not uh, so novel as to be unacceptable, but it also is playing off the digital interface, right? You know that you are a player, right? Uh, uh, you know, there, there's a way it brings in a whole other set of rhetorics and ideas from the medium that is mostly playing with, which is like representations of video games. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, absolutely, right. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that's really fascinating, like so. Homestuck is constantly playing with this idea of immediacy, right? This is mm -hmm. like where some of the questions of agency orbit, like uh, you're looking at a little guy on a screen and you, quote unquote, uh, literally early on in the comics run, um, can type in a little command and maybe the little guy is going to do the thing that you typed in. Uh, but maybe uh, blockages arise, right? Someone else's command gets picked or like an author figure steps in and like shuts down your command, like seizes control of uh, what was your avenue toward the story. Um, or, you know, the uh, 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 you want the little guy to pick something up. Well, it turns out he's got the most convoluted way of picking up and holding things to ever exist. And it's specifically designed this way to fuck with you, right? Right. Um, so it presents itself as immediate and then immediately like thwarts that immediacy. Um, and it does the, the, the other kind of move here uh, is the, the move to hypermediacy. Uh, these are terms that I'm pulling out of a book called Remediation uh, by uh, J. David Bolter and Richard Grusin. Uh, very important for me, this book. Uh, read it early on in my grad school career and sort of formed the foundation for a lot of my thinking in, in well, up to the present moment. Um, and it's been a thing that uh, has lurked in the back of these Homestuck discussions for me this entire time. Um, so what 
uh, hypermediacy is then is that that's the term that Bolter and Grusin use to refer to the ways that uh, a medium will try to represent other media. Uh, an example, like the the, it, the book is from 2000, maybe 1999. Um, so it's early in kind of the, the mainstreaming of the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. But an example they use is like the CNN website. Uh, which shows uh, shows like a grid of like a bunch of top stories and then uh, even has like a uh, video clips. I don't think they're live streams just yet, but like video clips that have aired on on the thing. Uh, and so uh, for them, hypermediacy is what happens when this new thing, uh, the computer, uh, tries to represent uh, an older medium uh, or like, you know, shows itself off by being able to like encapsulate an older medium. So in this case, uh, both the newspaper and uh, the television broadcast, right? The hypermedia is is uh, specifically about kind of like multiple media types uh, being uh, re-represented within a new medium. The other example that they talk about is basically like the, the, the graphical interface on your computer screen and how you can have multiple windows at once and all of those windows are going to have, you know, different things in them. One is the internet, one is like a paint program, uh, so on and so forth. So uh, rather than being like very, very close, right, without medium, as in immediacy, the hypermedium is like, you know, a whole bunch of frills and buttons and uh, uh, a bunch of things are happening kind of at once in a way that sometimes, you know, makes you a, a slightly more aware of the act of mediation taking place. Um, and the act of remediation for Bolter and Grusin uh, is the ping-ponging between immediacy and hypermediacy. And they, this is not unique to computers. They say all media do this, right? Every kind of emergent medium um, looks at the media that has preceded it um, and then uh, finds ways of uh, basically appropriating those representational techniques or those representational forms or at least becoming in dialogue with them and then using them to kind of like... Uh, uh, capitalize on what ultimately feels like authentic about an older medium and how can that be reprocessed to feel authentic or like, you know, uh, uh, real or immediate um, in in the new medium. So, uh, you know, the, some of the discussions we've had about this are like gestured at it about the main comic have to do with mm-hmm. like the ways that um, one of the reasons I think character voices are such a beloved part of Homestuck and one of the ways or one of the reasons I think people respond to the characters so strongly uh, is because Homestuck uh, as a story represents dialogue as chat logs and chat logs are a cultural form that we are conditioned to read as like conversations we have with our friends right as something with another person on the end as things that we too can save when we have really funny chat logs and like go back and reread them right that's right. the sense of immediacy in homestuck is predicated on a culture uh uh of people who like r- talk to each other on the computer essentially mm-hmm. and so uh one of the things that happens in the epilogues that i think is really cool is that it takes away like one of Homestuck's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, the the big thing that people were always talking about is like, look at what this thing is doing with the internet. Look at what this thing is doing with computers and what you can do with Flash and so on and so forth. Uh, and now we're in a book, which is an older medium, um, but we're doing things with books that you don't typically see, like uh, multicolored texts. Now, it's certainly not new uh, uh, in this way. The NeverEnding Story is a great example. And there's... um. You know, it's a uh, it's Faulkner who wanted to print. Uh, was it the Sound and the Fury in like different? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, right. Where, where each character would have different 
text or a different text color. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that didn't work out for him. So that's something to consider. Andrew Hussey succeeds where. Uh, <laughs> uh, I believe the failed. story is print costs, actually. Yeah. At the time. It was, it was not our artistic uh, completion, but mm-hmm. uh, and it's almost like, uh, you know, printing a 600 page book on photo paper. Uh huh. Um, uh, might be very expensive, mm-hmm. which is why I spent $35 on this book that is entirely printed on photo paper. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, still, Hussey got it done. Um, True. Yeah. So the great 3D renders of candy in this thing, <laughs> by the way. So uh, uh, the book, right, um, uh, takes kind of like all these colors and everything, and then it plays again with uh, the thing about uh, the book form that I think this really buys is that because the book is such a recognizable form, uh, it does uh, kind of pull you to sort of read past the text. You're like, oh, it's just a book. Like, what's a book going to do? So then uh, this sense of immediacy or like, you know, whatever immediacy uh, a typical fiction reading might buy you um, gets thwarted when Dirk takes over the narrative, right? And suddenly we get hypermediate. It's like, oh yeah, like all of these text colors that I've been seeing, like those are things that Homestuck uses in order to like denote personality or uh, perspective or whatever. Um, so again, it's kind of like playing with uh, uh, the mediated representations or sort of like the ways media work. Uh, and then just more broadly, uh, we've talked about Hussey a lot. Uh, Hussey only wrote the outline for this, as well as a few scenes, uh, I think, and some like character dialogue. Uh, but largely speaking, um, it was a collaborative effort uh, by uh, Sethiad Variable, also known as uh, uh, Jennifer Giesbrecht, uh, who was a Homestuck fanfic writer. I mean, other she's in other fandoms, obviously. Um, but we read Promstuck uh, that she did mm-hmm. collaboratively with Shelby and um, Tamsin Muir. Uh mm-hmm. It's a lot, a lot of prom stuck in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, Giesbrecht was also known for writing, uh, basically like sad stuck, right? Like uh, stories about like the the kids. Kind of, uh, this is a very common uh, kind of form of fan fiction, right? Like you take the characters who are in their adventure in the main story, and you think like, okay, in the future when all this is over. And like it's done and they're kind of like they've just gone back to their day to day lives. How messed up and traumatized are they? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm laughing because that. Yes, that is a, a common fanfic form. Uh-huh. It's But when you hear it summarized that way, it's very funny. <laughs> I mean, this, uh, and and like that's uh, what this is. So Giesbrecht uh, writes some of it. Um, she's uh, talked on uh, Twitter uh, pretty extensively about how this worked out because uh, she also had some like health issues come up. So she didn't get to do as much as she wanted. So other mm. uh, authors stepped in, um, one by the name of CT Set. Uh, and then uh, Aisha Ufera, who went on to do and um, also... Uh, uh, Lalo Hunt, uh, who are two people who went on to do like what pumpkin, like game dev work, like Hive Swap, Act Two, and some of the Friends Him stuff. Um, and then Hussey, I think, was a part of the editing process as well. And the way Giesbrecht talks about it is like everyone was like reading over the document and like making small edits and like massaging it so that it felt cohesive or whatever. Um, so uh, again, like I am fascinated in 2019 it's like oh this is like such an interesting way to try to take this uh Mm -hmm. this idea of like homestuck as being so like predicated upon like fan uh input or sort of like its own fan community 
and then having this big massive tome of uh like collaboratively written work uh all that sounds really cool and then as i said uh way back however many thousands of minutes ago how this feels ill-advised is that so much of this seems like an intentional provocation of the fandom it really does right like uh just the the hard swerves that that characters take and sort of like the the deep the the dark dark uh things that happen um and i think i am sort of positively responsive to this if only because uh as i said it validates me uh <laughs> i i had i had this michael uh, yeah you're valid. I am valid. At the end of Homestuck, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, they just, like, completed the game, the game that was, like, evil and cruel and, like, nested all of their misfortunes in their lives and did so intentionally yeah. in ways that they could yeah, never... Yeah, it's good. Quit thinking about it. Turn it off. Well, and, Stop it. And Quit. Guess what? It turns out that the world you make with that game uh, is filled with a bunch of evils that, like, no, spring up good. and, like, pull you down and... No, it's utopia. It's good. <laughs> Quit. Stop. <laughs> Quit being this way, uh, Homestuck fan. <laughs> I'm here from the outside to tell you, stop that. Yeah, <laughs> you're making it bad. <laughs> no, I mean that's that's my point, right? Is like, right, yeah, yeah right, it doesn't. Right. It like reproduces itself, like all yeah, of the. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, to me, it just seems like oh, like on the one hand, like I I am I am on board with this idea of like maybe because. This is the other thing is um, uh, I think many of there is a there can be a sentiment in fan circles and there this was especially true in like the early 2010s uh, and kind of throughout that era of like and, and you still hear it like if if franchise owners, whatever franchise, you know, insert it there, if they just listened to the fans, things yeah. would be so much better. Yeah, that that is the right. uh, you know that's how do you fix the DC universe? You listen to the fans, and guess what? Mm -hmm. They they did. That's uh, James Gunn has been appointed as like their point person for DC, right? Like mm -hmm. as the, the 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 content wrangler, and there's no one else who has so successfully managed the like I'm a professional fan thing, mm -hmm. right? Like that's him. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way whatsoever, but like that is his reputation as a filmmaker and that's his persona that he puts on in public. I don't, you know, I have no access to the person's internal thoughts, but it's like, I'm, I appreciate this as much or more as any other fan. And I'm going to do it justice. That, that is why for me, the guardians of the galaxy films are like unwatchable. Um, <laughs> and it's why the, that suicide squad I thought was really fascinating in the first half and extremely, uh, pat and boring on the other sides that he's really good at giving what the, the fans are asking for, uh, which is like, I think Suicide Squad looks like Homestuck, right? Like, mm, it's mm -hmm. big plot beats that are just peppered in with the most, like, witty banter back and forth that I find personally just, like, exhausting. Like, I, I really just find it difficult to sit through um, while acknowledging it's, like, extremely well-made cinema. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I, I, all of this sounds like really negative stuff, and it, 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 I don't mean it really in a negative way. I just don't like it. But, like, in terms of what are people asking for and what do they want and how do they want to see the thing done? I, I, he's, he's a person who's an expert on it. You, you couldn't get a better person to, to do it. Um, that's just not what I'm in the thing for. That's not, you know, why I read comic books and that's not why I watch cinema. Um, I, I'm after slightly different things, but 
it, it's undeniable that he's good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he's got a lot of talent. And I'm deeply um, impressed by it. Uh, and especially watching him the past few weeks, like pushing the new Shazam film, which one would assume uh, would be impossible to push. He's what? It's ridiculous on face. Didn't that come out like two years ago or something? No, that's the that's the original. There's a sequel. Oh my god, soon. Jesus! Yeah, it's like and it's like the family, you know the okay. the Captain Marvel uh-huh. family in the comics, and uh, which is on face, like I said, like a ridiculous concept, and yet he has, um, you know, a, a, as his role as this kind of uh, Paul Feige version over at DC now, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's he's selling it, and people are responding really well to a thing that, again, to me looks. Uh, you know, conceptually, I cannot believe this would ever even be produced, let alone, you know, be uh, celebrated as it's coming out. So uh, he he's excellent at the job. It's it's deeply impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there's a fandom impulse, and that fandom impulse is, imp- you know, it's not just emergent from the grassroots, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not a, a bottom up phenomenon entirely. It is also produced from the top down the object tells you how to read it that, that's a common thing that we've talked about forever and that's not unique to homestuck all objects tell you what the optimal way of engaging with them are in order to pick up the the things they're putting down and uh it, in the current moment uh what we have seen i think is that you need people who are faces of the optimal way of picking up what's being put down right it's not enough for the object itself to tell you how to read it you need a figure or maybe you don't need a figure, but uh, 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 large corporate IP have produced figures who will tell you how to, to do that, um, and they will model behavior for you. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, it's been very successful. That you know that one might say actually that one of the most complicated and weird things going on with Star Wars versus the success of Marvel or versus the success of um, uh, the you know. Uh, splinters of these other major fandoms, right? Uh, one of the things that's been an issue for Star Wars is that there's no BNF. There's no corporate mm-hmm. BNF to tell you how to think. I mean, maybe it's um, uh, 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 the Mandalorian guy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, uh, what's that guy's name? Oh, oh, God. I listen to so much Civilized Age, um, um, and yet I can't remember his... He is a segment. What's he dresses name? like a weird cowboy. Uh-huh. Oh, God. You know, sorry, maybe, it's it. <laughs> maybe it's him. Maybe it's he up. might be the closest, honestly. Yeah. Uh, do, 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 not John Favreau. It's not him. No, not him. Hold on. I'm looking. Dave Filoni. Yes, yes. The Filoni Zoni. That's it. That's the segment <laughs> on uh, More Civilized right. Age. Check that out if <laughs> right. you listen to this and haven't listened to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, I I, I I don't know. Maybe you can cut a bunch of that out. Maybe none of that is like saying anything new. But it, it is. Uh, I that's really sticking out for me. You know, in these epilogues. No, I, I think um, that's accurate because um, one of the things that the epilogues end up being useful for me to articulate with regard to this like fandom impulse is like one of the ways I read. I guess the epilogues is saying like, okay, mm-hmm. like. Fandom, you get to be in charge of, like, you know, this is kind of like what is uh, going on with maybe some of the candy stuff, right? The one that's like, Mm -hmm. because this is the one where, like, people are, like, so many uh, stock fan fiction scenarios come up. Roxy and John literally go on a coffee shop date, right? Yeah, so maybe, actually, uh, is this a good place where almost an hour and a half in? Yeah. Is this maybe a good place for us to just talk about these through the plot itself? Or, like, through stuff that occurs? Yeah. Uh, and uh, we can do that 
right after I like cap this maybe. Sure, please, um, please, yeah. So like uh there is this one of the things that Homestuck kind of pulls into four is that like when you say like, oh, if people just listen to the fans, then you know, the, the mm. product would be good. Um, yeah. One of the things that the epilogues, I think, are really useful for, like, teasing out or pushing to the fore is, like, hey, listen, uh, there's lots of fans, and lots of fans want lots of things. So, like, listening to the fans might mean that Dirk is so depressed, he is so depressed, he is so existentially, cosmically mm-hmm. depressed that he kills himself. Uh, but then mm-hmm. there are also, because there are fans who want that, right? There, are, There is thick about that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's like bad. I'm just saying like that exists, right? That's part of right. fandom. That's part of the fans. Opposed to that, there are people who don't want that to happen, who want a uh, fic about Dirk maybe feeling sad, but working through it. Uh, Dirk coming out of his depression. Dirk finally smiling for once in his life, right? Those things are fandom too. And they can't uh, like, uh, uh, like if the, if there is like a focus on like a real story where something is happening, right? If, if there's like a canon where, um, uh, things, uh, uh, that are quote unquote real are happening. Uh, those two possibilities can't really coexist. And this is part of like what Homestuck is, or what these epilogues are trying to do with kind of like some post canon, uh, uh, thinking that, uh, I think Mm -hmm. we can save for later. Cause I think there's also much more to unpack there, right? I, I get the impulse behind it cause it ties up with some of the things that I'm saying right now. Um, but I don't think Homestuck or the Homestuck epilogues eventually arrive at, at some sort of satisfactory, uh, uh, answer about this issue. I do think they are very good at putting uh, the issue on the table, however. So, yeah, let's let's talk through mm-hmm. some more specific things. Uh, you want to talk about meat first? Or you want to talk about candy first? I do feel like heuristically we do have to split them up. Uh, let's talk about meat, I guess, just because, uh, you know, it's um, if you if you have the physical book, there was a lot of talk in our discord about like, you know, what's the optimal reading order and what's the preferred reading order? Because uh, right. I think that, you know, if you read Candy first, I think you would have maybe a slightly different sense of this project than if you read Meat. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But also, I do think that uh, both of them are made to be read ultimately. And yeah. that's kind of the, the the move to make rather than figuring out like what the the real reading order is. Um, that said, the design of the, you know, things teach you how to read them. Meat is, uh, the part of the, the actual print book that is presented as the cover of the, the print book. If you're holding it, uh, mm-hmm. the right way and not upside down with like a giant, uh, uh, sticker across the bottom. Yeah, I guess that's, an, it is a sticker so you can remove it. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually did remove it. I put it on the inside of the book. Oh, Ooh. Um, uh, so exerting your agency. Yeah, I, I am. Well, you know what? I, I would say I have I have a slightly more abstract way of thinking that, which is that John is offered a choice, uh-huh. and uh, it it is conveniently presented as meat and candy as an arbitrary choice between two things, but actually as a choice between doing the thing that Rose tells him to do versus not doing the thing Rose tells him to do. Right. Um, right. Like, it, there's a way that a thing that is a pretty impactful, plotty-based choice, right, is presented as just one of two random options, as opposed to an, affir- an affirmation versus a negation. Right. Um, and meat is the affirmation. It does start with a long uh, archive of our own <laughs> thing, which I think probably tells you more about the project than anything else in it. Right. Just to be honest with you, it's, it's non-canon. Like all all of these things are about canonicity or whatever, but they are quote unquote post-canon. Um, you know, everything before this has been objectively true, and now everything after this ha- is, like, ontologically equivalent with an AO3 thing. Right. That you might read there, a thick. Right. Um, and uh, it tells you a lot of stuff going on here at the top. 
You know, a lot of yep. content warnings. The economy's in there. Uh-huh. It's the first line. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe we'll talk about some of that stuff. But uh, the summary is: ten years after their adventure began, the heroes are enjoying a well-earned retirement on Earth C. But John still has one last choice to make. Wow! 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 John's one last choice. <laughs> And, uh, and he does it. So, you know, they go on that picnic, blah, 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 chooses meat. He goes back into canon to do the fight, as you summarized. Mm-hmm. What sticks out here to you, Michael, is a thing that is worth talking about? Um, I mean, I think that uh, it's really interesting the ways that uh, so everyone, everyone forever, right, since the moment it got unveiled, expected to revisit Caliborn's masterpiece at some point and uh, mm-hmm. to have it... Uh, be revealed that he like cut something critical out, right? That there is something mm-hmm. like fundamentally inaccurate about the way that he like understood what was going on there. Um, uh, nope. <laughs> right. And like, that's, so that is a thing that ends up being interesting to me that like, no, like that even the narrative even like sort of points that out. It's like, Oh, you might've expected like, actually you wouldn't be surprised if this didn't go entirely how you were told the first time, but it's not really that different. It's more just like, there's more squabbling and more fighting. Uh, the one like key detail that is not present in Caliborn's original version in the, the story is that, uh, the John that shows up and pulls everyone in is like, uh, I guess 26 or so. Uh, and all of the other kids are still 16 year olds. Um, and that has a kind of interesting and weird effect on this whole thing to me, right? That John, who goes back into canon, is actually older than he ever was in canon. And so when he's running around with all of his friends and they're, like, prepping to to do this whole fight, uh, like, he's, he's, like, just pulled them from a doomed timeline, right? They're, they're not his, like, friends from, like, outside canon. Like, he's just, like, generated another version of his friends. Uh, right. And it's kind of like, huh, okay. Like, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, and then they, right. they uh, uh, the four main kids get trapped in a house. And it's like, it turns out being, they, they get literally homestuck. Wow. Right. For eternity mm-hmm. with depression. Yep. Um, I, I, so I guess like the structure here that I found so interesting was l- less that part, mm-hmm. just to be honest. Like I, I actually, because my assumption was like, yes, we'll just see the battle play out. And we, we and we do. I mean, you know, it's not. Much more than that, uh, the B plot, like the relationship between the A and the B plot, mm-hmm. is the thing that's really fascinating to me. This like the B plot is this absolutely forgettable. Who gives a shit? Uh, I mean, I'm sure people do. This is not. I'm not. <laughs> I don't mean it dismissively, but just in terms of like, if this is meat, right? If this is like big plotty plot stuff, who is elected president of Earth C does not matter even a little bit to me. Yeah. Um, although one can assert and assume that in the moment that this is released, that that might be more prescient and, uh, a, uh, capturing of real life animus and putting it into the work, right? Like, you know, election politics and blah, 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 Mm -hmm. which is funny to me. I mean, I really like the Dave Carcat running for election stuff, but like, they just go around like trying to get people to sign on to their project. And it's like the worst episode of the West wing, (laughs) right? Like I just, uh, I, I don't, I don't know why that's in here and I don't really care about where it goes, unfortunately, but a lot of the scenes are very funny. Yeah. It's some of the most classic Homestuck that's in here, I think. Um, what do you, what do you think about this? 
drive for narrative control, Michael? Uh, I mean, I think it's interest. It's an interesting way to take all of Homestuck's meta stuff. I mean, also, also, it's been like the central conceit of Homestuck's meta stuff from the beginning, right? Who controls the narrative? Right. right. I mean, that that is what's so fascinating to me about it is like when we got there, I thought this is being treated as like really a big move. But this is the whole comic. Right. This has happened like six times. Um, I think the the Dirk reveal, I respond very positively to. Um, but this is one of those instances where, as you have said multiple times during the course of the show, I'm poisoned by knowledge. Right. Uh, because uh, one of the things that uh, I, I talked about this way back in, in the part episode when that was relevant, but um, I was fascinated by the idea of Wizardy Herbert, the unfinished, like, weird Harry Potter, like, uh, parody novel that Hussey wrote mm-hmm. and incorporated some ideas from into Homestuck and then incorporated mm-hmm. certain parts uh, into the thing uh specifically and can can i pull from my memory here yes go ahead doesn't the villain of that do this uh the villain is a dirk character like clearly right yeah it It is not um he the villain doesn't do that but it does turn out it's like you know here are some here's like four friends on a magic quest together uh and Mm -hmm. then it turns out one of them has been the villain the entire time Got it. Okay. Right. Uh, And he somehow, like, you you don't get the specifics of it, but he somehow, like, finagled it uh, through, like, some, you know, bullshit plot mechanics with, like, pulling fictional characters out of books and, like, putting real people in books and and so on and so forth. That's it. Okay. I remembered something around that that being there, but that's what that's what it is. Right. Uh, And so uh, in in the in the section that is uh, in Homestuck proper, I noticed this. Uh, because, uh, the dynamic you get is there's a character named Russet who's kind of like, I think I described him as like, what if Harry Potter and Ron Weasley were the same character? Like if you conflated them because he's, because he's like, on the one hand, he's like a, a, a very stereotypical, like young magic wizard, but also he's like a total loser and buffoon. Um, and he's also like, uh, in the way that he's presented a, uh, uh, he's kind of a, if you want to read it in fiction, right, he's like Roxy writing a version of Jake out of fiction. It's Hussey reusing this character type of kind of like the hapless goofus who uh, happens to be like extremely handsome and everyone loves him. Um, and in the excerpt that we get from Wizardy Herbert, he is positioned as kind of this goofus who is um, in some vague way, like being narrativized to be in love with the friend Grant, who turns out to be uh the like villain right that that the villain has like uh seized control of the narrative and is like or in or the narrative was always written for him to like basically right there there's something happening here with um uh eventually like what we get with Dirk and Jake we're like well what was Dirk doing uh was that all the autoresponder has he like pressured Jake into this relationship um when i'm reading homestuck that Seems really strange to me that you would set that up and then kind of not really address it so directly in the comic. And then eventually when the Wizardy Herbert draft leaks and I read through Mm it, um, it is like even more clear to me that uh, Russet and Grant were a prototype of uh, Jake and Dirk. Um, Mm. And so up until like the end of the comic, I'm kind of like, you know, I, I... 
you shouldn't let like draft materials impact your reading of uh, or like impact too much right your reading of a finished text i see this actually a lot with people who like you know dig through like cut content from video games and then make a whole bunch of assertions about like what the game really was and then it had to get cut and it's like no sometimes you cut things because you don't have the resources and like Mm -hmm. or you think it was the wrong decision right and the the the, the little (laughs) remainders just like lie around Right. Um, like don't go into cut content and then try to like fill in gaps uh, of in the lore of the game as is. Cannot believe you're coming from the Dark Souls. Community I am so, so coming for, for the Dark Souls community be- because this I annoys the we're piss at the out end of me. this. Yeah, at the end of this podcast, you are you're alienating yet another phantom. <laughs> That's my job. Oh God. Uh, but yeah. So uh, anyway, um, the fact that like. The fact that this uh, uh, is kind of clearly in Hussey's mind, because Hussey has openly admitted to recycling ideas from uh, Wizardy mm-hmm. Herbert into this story. Um, yeah. I'm just like, well, man, that's odd. Like, why would you take like this character pairing, like this clear dynamic between these characters? And then, uh, as I said, the uh, Homestuck makes it clear like that. the That's the twist in Wizardy Herbert is realizing like, oh, shit, this guy we thought was our friend was actually the villain the whole time. Um, yeah. Why reveal the twist to a that's actually not in the novel, right? That's one of the weird things is that like reading the draft, you can pick up on the clues, uh, but that mm-hmm. re- revelation isn't there. Hmm. Um, and so I up until the end of the comic, I'm kind of like waiting for the shoe to drop on that in some way. And it seems like mm-hmm. uh, one of the ways that the comic gets around that is by having the autoresponder as a, a kind of like secondary Dirk who can like be the worst version of Dirk. Um, yeah. Well, the thing for me, I guess, you know, without any access to that, uh, other than like, obviously my half memories of what you've told me about it, the, what was so fascinating to me about like what happens with Dirk here is that we've talked about this many times in Homestuck that after, after breaks in the comic, particularly act breaks or like just big posting gaps, Mm -hmm. the characters come back, but they're, they're not quite the same as they were, Mm -hmm. right? Like there, there are changes in the ways that characters are written and, and you know, I have no internality into Hussey. That could be because Hussey wants them to do something different, needs them to be slightly different, so they change, and that's okay. Uh, or it just needs to be, it can be there's some plot stuff that they need to get to, and so you just start writing the character, and it changes, you know, in a way. it's I, I don't know how artificial or organic it is, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, is it a conscious break, or is it a thing? doesn't really matter. Ultimately, the effect is the characters are written slightly differently quite often. Um, and sometimes written entirely out of the comic, you know, see Jade for Act Six, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes they're just uh, characters who are critical are just like obliterated for a while, mm-hmm. or just don't exist, or, or have no impact on like anything that's happening or conversations that occur. And what's interesting to me about this, and I messaged you about this, is that Dirk, Dirk is not the Dirk of the previous comic. Mm-hmm. Like you can read this back into Dirk. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people do. And this actually makes a lot more, a lot of things that people said about Dirk in the Discord months ago makes a lot of those things make more sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of me being like, where are you getting that? You know, like, where's it? Well, it's coming from them reading something from four years later. Right. Back into the original thing, which is, you can do that, but that's not what the show is about. Right. right? The show is about kind of trying to re- reconstruct, uh, uh, you know, a crystal moment moment after moment right Mm -hmm. um and tracking history forward rather than backward but uh, you know i'm uh homestuck is an object that changes over time and is different at different times and different for different people at different times 
And if you treat it all as a totality after the epilogues, I think that maybe you're missing some of like the actual maneuvers that occur in the thing. That's all to say that uh, what's fascinating to me is that Dirk become goes from being like a pretty interesting character who has a lot going on and has a lot of development, and especially those conversations with Dave, right? Mm-hmm. Like this recasts every conversation that Dirk had with Dave as like just crass manipulation. Yep. Uh, in a way that it's just like, I, I guess if you were like committed to that character, if you were committed to that character in a in like a, uh, I want them to be positive and, and good in the end, it might be disappointing to you. Mm-hmm. If you liked the slightly more like Machiavellian Dirk from earlier, then it might be like really affirmative for you because you're like, oh, this is the ultimate Machiavellian maneuver, right? Like mm-hmm. the ultimate manipulator. Uh, and if you're like me, who you're just reading through it, and you don't have a particular attachment to this character one way or the other. You know, Dirk is not one of my beautiful boys whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just think, oh, that's, you know, I, I maybe a little bit zoomed out from it, right? Um, which is that now Dirk, and I messaged you this, Dirk used to be Batman. Now Dirk is Lego Batman. <laughs> like, Dirk is like a almost like parody version of, of himself. And even more importantly, Dirk is now like, a like a Hannibal fanfic character. Yeah, it I he he just reminds me of the way that I saw on Tumblr people writing Hannibal fanfic and writing like little scenes. You know, I'm I'm not reading like extensive things, but it's this like I'm manipulating you for your own good to get the thing that should happen no matter what, and that's what Hannibal the show is about, right? I mean, you know, there's at least the first two seasons are all about Hannibal doing things to uh, Will Graham, right, mm-hmm. and like manipulating him from the shadows and like saying one thing to his face. And then we get these cutaways to know what Hannibal's really doing. He's a little scamp over there. Mm -hmm. It's like fun. Like I, you know, like these are not for me reading these characters is not like a moral universe in which I determine characters are good or bad. Right. It's Mm -hmm. just whatever they do is, is, um, you know, within the confines of the thing, Mm -hmm. they're not real people. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it's like, oh, it, but the thing for me is like in Hannibal that that's really cohesive and coherent. And I think what's great about that show is how much it commits to the bit, uh-huh. right? You know, like, like there's just a way that the pedal is to the floor in every episode of Hannibal. Yeah. And it is so extreme that, uh, that you can really revel in the manipulations. And here, I think that why it's not as fun for me is I think maybe I just don't like the Dirk voice all that much. It really is Lego Batman to me. It's yeah. like, I'm the master manipulator. I'm getting you. Uh, and like, that's just not, it's one note, I guess is what I'm saying. There's not a lot of like up and down to it. Uh, although where there is up and down where he's fighting with Calliope, that's really fun. I think that's really good of like the two voices battling back and forth to make each other do things in the plot. Yeah. But the other thing that really sticks out to me, and this is like, you know, uh, perhaps uncomfortable to say in the show, is that it almost feels like fetish fiction at some points. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is um, set in the thread. And, okay. Yeah. I just, I, I, you know, unprompted, I felt that way where it was like, I, you know, I've, I've, what is the, what is the thing? Is it mind control fic? Uh-huh. I don't know what the specific thing, but, you know, I've seen that posted around on the internet. Uh-huh. And it, it like the form is very close to that. Yes, right. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and especially the scenes with, um, uh, with Jake. Uh huh. Like the you know these like really, I, Jake turns into like a Smee character. Hook has Hook has its hooks yeah. in this uh, <laughs> more than you would think, and he's like this like pathetic Smee. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, why? But you know, like why won't you love me? Kind, and then you have this like. 
mind controlling of him to like produce those outcomes and then kick those outcomes away. Right. Like it's a really, I'm sure fun scene if you're into that. And for me, I just kept thinking like, I feel like I'm, I'm reading someone's mind control fic yeah. and, um, I don't, I, I didn't enjoy that part. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, that was notable to me too. It has a very, and I think that's a part of the, um, the format, right. Moving straight to text, right. uh, like, yeah. Uh, because of the way that like reading text works, uh, it feels or can feel a lot more intimate in kind of this interior way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, if I if I went back and and wrote the Vriska and Gamzy scenes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of like Vriska making Gamzy do stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or what? Uh, Arania, who was doing that? Uh, Arania. I... It was Arania. Yeah, yeah. Arania's doing. It. Sorry, yeah. Just I, I could see the image of like the the dude <laughs> above Gamzy's head, but I was like, wait, where did it come from? Yeah, of Arania. If I went and just wrote those into text, it might actually look quite a, a bit like this, right? Right. So, it could be that, you know, I think you're right. I think the medium matters here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it matters. And um, uh, as you you helped me point out here, uh, these themes are running all throughout Homestuck proper of like hearing voices yeah, yeah. in your head and like being mind controlled and being told what to do, uh, which was always, I thought, very interesting and you you commented on the voices Mm -hmm. thing yeah yeah we've talked about it a few times right just how many intrusive voices and voices in your head making you do things uh and and people telling you what to do and you have no choice that that might be the predominant theme Mm -hmm. of homes and it's always meditized right it's always kicked upward to like or not always but often kicked up into this narrator narratee situation but the the raw fact is it's it's long sections of the comic that are about you doing things against your will mm-hmm. and how sometimes that's good for you. Yeah. And here that's exactly what Dirk is saying. Like what, one of the things that yeah. Dirk is saying is like, he has to do this because um, he has to keep things relevant, right? He has to keep mm-hmm. things going, mm-hmm. which is like, he has to keep the homestuck machine going. He can't let the franchise die. Right. Uh, Rose yeah. says the threat of John, not uh, kicking off the meat narrative is that uh, things will quote dissipate. Right. There's a process of dissipation, uh, which, again, you can read kind of allegorically as people are just kind of going to forget about Homestuck and move on from it unless we, you know, rejigger the franchise. And that's what Dirk says. There's like, well, this has got to happen. I'm going to be the one Mm -hmm. to do it. And maybe someone will make a 13 episode epic. Uh huh. You know about it. Well, the other thing, too, I guess around that is I was primed. Maybe. Yeah. Primed by the comic, I guess, is is, uh, primed is maybe the right word here. Mm hmm. I had an expectation that I would come into the epilogues and through an association with Lord English and Caliborn's like plotty plot plot, Mm -hmm. you know, everything plot, that I would be the villain. As I've said many times, am I the villain? (laughs) You know, because consistently throughout the comic, um, the person who is more interested in the thing moving along has been the villain, and the person who's more interested in seeing things play out interestingly for characters has been like, you know, at least having grace, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is where Calliope versus Caliborn, initially I read as a pretty, uh, you know, ambivalent critique. Mm-hmm. Both sides are being critiqued pretty heavily, I thought. Mm-hmm. And you were like, well, I don't know, maybe the thumb's on the scale. You know, I was talking about this earlier in this this very recording. Mm-hmm. And as the comic plays out, and even as it plays out here, right, like Lord English is evil and Caliborn is evil and Calliope might have some negative influence sometimes, but ultimately is more good, mm-hmm. right? Um, is at least the voice of reason uh, in meat, too. 
uh, and solves the problem for everybody, right? You know, like, it allows things to move beyond this, like, impasse. Right. And uh, so I was kind of primed for that. I, I thought maybe we would get into the epilogues and, like, my desire across the comic to, like, keep things moving would have me be associated with Lord English and, like, you know, the Death Star. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, the annihilating force of everything else. And, you know, blowing up the dream bubbles, all that kind of stuff. I, I wasn't really prepared for, like, my mode of reading being uh, I, I am uh, against everyone's will making them do things they don't want to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, that's what's happening here, right? Like, this is the narratorial, like, addressing of the reader, uh, uh, writer relationship, writer, producer, consumer relationship, or encoder, decoder relationship, whatever term you want to use here, right? Like, um, if, if, if schematically my unhappiness with how Homestuck moves uh, is mapped onto this, I'm the Dirk. Right. I'm making people do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, one of the ways that Homestuck exploits this uh, theory of character that it sets up, or like, you know, this potential idea of like, you know, the characters exist mm -hmm. sort of independent of the story, right, as kind of these idealized objects, this thing that we've critiqued from, from the beginning. Um, yeah. Uh, because it is frankly, like it's, it's not true, like not materially true. And it gets you into a lot of weird places when you start having to think seriously about fiction. This is one of those weird places where mm -hmm. yeah. the very act of like telling a story is doing harm to the characters who aren't real. Right. Yeah. I'm not uh, like, I, <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not real people. Um, and the ultimate self thing, you know, interjects into that or, or confuses that even more, right? That there's like a kind of macro self that is this kind of independent entity, mm -hmm. um, which we've talked about a million times, right? Like now we have a word for it. We didn't have a word for it before, mm -hmm. right? But now we have like a, like a, a homestuck textual word for it, the ultimate self, this kind of like uh, perfect spherical encapsulation of what a character is across all instances. When you write a rose, it will be some, you know, platonic emanation of this rose bubble, mm -hmm. you know, this rose thing. Uh, and it has independent existence, right? Which is like a beautiful way of like fictionalizing how we interact with characters, right? Yeah. Like when I write my Winnie the Pooh fanfic, I'm, uh, you know, I'm taking some part of, Winnie the Pooh's uh, lovable stuck nature. He, you know, he gets stuck in that little tree trying to get that honey. Mm -hmm, it's funny. Mm -hmm. It's good. You know, he's and he pops out. And he makes that little cork cork noise, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Piglet's there, and he's gonna get attacked by bees. He's gonna get stung on the face. He's gonna swell up mm -hmm. into huge, horrifying proportion. Right? Those things you can imagine this thing occurring, um, and uh, of course the Akira-like flesh beast emerging from the stings uh -huh, uh, uh -huh, right. that then goes on to demolish the Hundred Acre Wood. You can see this in your mind's eye because you have a coherent image of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are cultural objects that circulate. They have some sort of shared knowledge of them. Um, and often that shared knowledge can be knowledge, not knowledge. <laughs> uh, that shared knowledge can get pared down or whittled apart or whatever, right? When I tell you, hey, um, uh, I'm making Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, pull up, pick up an AK-47 uh, and uh, go, uh, you know, volunteer uh, to help out the Iran-Contra <laughs> affair, right? <laughs> you know, he's hanging out the uh, hanging out the side of a Black Hawk helicopter. Uh-huh. Blackhawk might not have been around at the time, but you get the gist, uh -huh. right? You probably don't imagine Steamboat Willie, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, you imagine probably a more contemporary uh, Mickey Mouse doing that and firing into 
you know, a uh, black ops base that CIA opt. Of course, Mickey Mouse is involved in an internal operation to clean it up, uh-huh. right? right. You know, he, he's not the villain of this story right. that I'm doing. Uh, but, right, like, the, I'm saying all that to say that, like, they're not independent entities. They are uh, manipulated. They are transformed by actual cultural action. Uh, we don't know what Rose is other than the sum total of emanations of Rose. She has no independent reality. If we uh, obliterated all evidence of Rose and everyone forgot about Rose, as has happened to many fictional things in the past, mm-hmm. right? Um, th- those things occur. There are popular media objects from human history where we have a slice of it or a rumor of it or an idea of it and no evidence and we can't reconstruct a thing. If a thing were real and had independent reality from human beings, there would be more emanations of it than that, right? Mm-hmm. And like, look, that's getting deep in some f- philosophy weeds and there are plenty of people in that realm of philosophy who would say that what I just said is ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? Like, I've read that work too. They, you know, they would say that if, if it is thinkable, Anyway, we don't have to get into it. I'm well read in this area of things that are that are happening. I just don't subscribe to it. Um, I, I think that's like on face, not the way that things work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's all to say, right? Like, that's really interesting. I like that we have a term for it. I do see why people have used that term now in the Discord and other places to to be critical of the show. It's just a yet another emanation haha, right. of a thing I don't agree with. Right. Well, and it's also like, think about what uh, leaning into the ultimate self gets you. It makes you the villain, right? It It's about Uh-oh. it's like about uh, adhering to the rules of the game, pulling you deeper yeah. into the game, which is overall harmful for you and harmful for everyone around you. Yeah, it, it turns you into something like a manipulator. Yeah. Like, so. Uh oh, uh oh, <laughs> hold on. What? What? Uh, <laughs> that seems bad. Yeah, that seems bad for me. Yeah. Uh. But yeah. So I, you know, I think it's fun. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So just to close up the thought I was having before, I think it's fun to like come to the end and realize you're the villain. Like mm-hmm. that is that is interesting. I like the meta move of that. Uh. But the way that it actually works out and the way that that gets narrativized and it can be narrativized in a thousand different ways, right? Like, uh, just because this is the way it is doesn't mean this is the way this idea has to go. But to fight to to like sit through, and I I mean that in a literal way of like 150 pages of like Dirk mind control fic mm-hmm. is not. I didn't find that particularly exciting. Yeah, it's a it's a very odd and uncomfortable form for this to take. Again, this is I have barely talked about kind of like the the reader response to this, but. Uh, yeah, please, pe- please. Pe- I mean, I don't have me much to say just yet. I think it can all kind of maybe be oh. chunked at the end. But like when I Got say it. that there was uh, a lot of angry response, some of it was in regard to this. And I don't, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, I don't blame people for reading this and being like, this is weird and uncomfortable and I don't like it. And I think the maybe intended uh way that you're supposed to understand this because we've got this introduced idea of post canon that really actually gets introduced uh, with the credits of the main comic <clears throat> right and then is uh, sort of very slowly elaborated over the the next couple of years um the idea behind post canon uh is something like you know the uh like the epilogues don't have to be taken as true Right. Like if, mm-hmm. if you were a yeah. Homestuck fan and you don't like these epilogues, you don't have to take them as true because you're supposed to treat them like 
uh, any other given piece of fan fiction that you read. Hence the AO3. Yeah, they start. Yeah, right. yeah, they start with that thing. Right. For sure. So there's this. Uh, uh, it, it's communicating to you that like you can take or leave this stuff. If you don't like it, you can you can leave it. Um, and I I. I pick that up pretty quick and I think that's a really interesting maneuver. But again, it feels kind mm-hmm, of ill-advised yeah. uh, because Andrew Hussey's name is on this thing. That little that right. little thing we called the author function that we talked about. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, that, that gives the imprimatur of of authenticity and canonicity, uh, even if it is not literally someone putting pen to paper, but uh, is an operation over fiction that thing the author function right right yeah this thing that um is like a uh, a a kind of cognitive and interpretive structure that is maintained not by individuals but by like cultural apparatuses uh that mm-hmm. are outside yeah. of any one person's control or ability to to really truly like manipulate mm-hmm. that thing? yeah that thing uh that thing still exists right and it follows <laughs> To the epilogues. So right. regardless of how much, uh, you know, we can say, anyone involved in this project could say, like, well, don't take it as canon. It's not really canon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, that's fine. But Andrew Hussey's name is on the thing. And that brings along the author function that puts uh, interpretive weight behind anything that's going on in here, right? It, it connects mm-hmm. it. This is... If it's not uh, uh, already clear, this is why we're ending the show here. <laughs> um, right. Because, uh, you know, we get hussy throughout the main comic as the author. And then here we see what I think is kind of the the full, like, outgrowth or extent of all of that weird fiddling with the author function we've been observing throughout mm-hmm. this whole show is, like, an attempt to divest oneself wholly of the author function, which isn't going to work. That's the thing. Uh, like, I mean, or rather... I'm reading it. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, let's see if this does work. But like, it doesn't. Right. Right. Well, uh, can, can I ask you a, a clarifying question? Sure. Can I uh, sell a T-shirt with uh, Jake on it? Uh, my goodness. I think that that might be a dicey proposition, Cameron. Uh, is there some sort of intellectual property that is owned by what pumpkin that prevents me from selling uh Homestuck merch? Yeah, yeah. I would say that there's uh, something in the Library of Congress where a copyright is registered for Homestuck to someone named Andrew Hussey. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. That's Uh uh, truly Uh post-canonical, really. Almost as post-canonical as literally The Lion King. (laughs) You can write as much fanfic as you want, but you can't can't make your own t-shirt with The Lion King on it. Mm -hmm. Unless you're on Redbubble and no one knows about it. (laughs) Right, uh, yeah, so uh, you... I don't know. That's yeah. maybe my opinion on it. Yeah. No, I mean, Fa- fascinating that it's open when it uh, keeps the thing alive and it's closed when you can make money on it. Right. Like, oh, c- continue to write your fanfics. Continue to make your fan art. Uh, it can be whatever you want. We're post canon, baby. Uh, but also, like, there are going to be projects that have uh, some lingering hussy imprint on them, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that, yeah. like, that's going to make a difference. And it does make a difference with stuff like Homestuck Squared, which, again, I'll, I'll touch on very briefly when we get to the end. The other mm-hmm. thing that happens then, to go back, like, to point back to, to part episode 12.3, here is Calliope um, uh, talking over Dirk. Uh, 
In his haste to manipulate the events surrounding Doom Jade's ascent toward an outcome favorable to himself, the prince has unwittingly revealed several glaring weaknesses. By dictating the reality of others through expressions which he and he alone can relate to, he resorts to comparing all experience to his own, presuming his status on the side of my horizon would forever go unchallenged. His hubris went unchecked. He exposed too much of himself to all who would observe his wanton display of self-gratification. Many of his personal biases and experiences have leaked through the seams of textual causality, leaving them vulnerable to exploitation by an adversary. Uh, this is when, like, it, like, slot machine goes off for me here, right? Because mm -hmm. this is what I said about the end of the comic, is that this thing is teaching you uh, to understand the process of interpretation as carried out by other people as a grounds for, like, uh, a correction, if not kind of a, mm -hmm. a necessarily ipso facto combative relationship with other Homestuck fans. And here that gets replicated again explicitly within this idea of dueling narrators. The mm -hmm. the villainous thing to do is, one, not just uh, uh, try to get the Homestuck machine going again, right, to, to, to uh, start it all up again, but two, to do it wrong, right? That there's right and wrong ways to restart <laughs> Homestuck. Uh, uh, maybe you've convinced me. Maybe it's good. No. <laughs> Maybe knowing I'll never have to read it again uh -huh. and just kind of sitting with the big meta moves and watching your eyeballs, uh, you know, turn into eight balls uh -huh. right in front of me uh, on the video chat that we're doing, obviously, right now. Uh -huh. uh, maybe that uh, maybe that makes it good now. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's another thing that I think is like, I think this is really cool. And also it's a little bit of the, the ill-advised stuff because... Yeah, one would hope and I was, you know, certainly hoping at a certain point in reading these epilogues for the first time that we would be able mm -hmm. to get out of the impasse of like training of like the object training you to like see other people who are reading the object as potential enemies. But no, mm -hmm. that's that's like the bread and butter of the thing. <laughs> right. Like this is about not <laughs> like two dueling stories and like uh, in, eventually yeah. Alt Calliope sets off to do battle with the other narrator, Dirk. Yeah, and and to see other people who not who narrate the events uh, and understand them in a particular framework. I mean, I'm repeating a little bit what you're saying, but like uh, the the events in front of you and the way you understand them, the interpretive mechanism itself. That's the thing to fight over, which makes a lot of sense now. About like uh, you know, it's been latent, and I've kind of understood this the whole time. But to see it kind of put so clearly, uh, I don't know, you know, just. Uh, clearly put a pin in here mm -hmm. Ma makes some of the response to this show <laughs> puts it just in a little bit clearer light yes which is like it's not just disagreeing with how we do the thing but it it, it, it quite literally is if you read the thing wrong uh you you have to be like put down uh-huh Whereas for me and for us, right, like we have our opinion. I have my idea about like the reality of these characters and I think that there's like good and bad trade-offs right for for me a way of reading and a way of engaging with something is not like uh, a, a manichaean there's the light side and the dark side to it right it's just like each reading strategy and i've said this before each reading strategy has uh positives and drawbacks mm -hmm. right like if you're a new critic and you look at the thing and you only want to look at the text well that means that you get a pretty fine in-depth set of coherencies but you lose some context right and like it depends on how you think about those things and what the value is you place on it 
that you might choose that. If you're a historicist and you really want to look at the context the most, well, you might lose some specificity of the thing itself by reducing it or comparing it to its historical context. And we, in the show, we bounce it back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And this notion of like ultimate selfhood or the, you know, uh, uh, character independent reality, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Fictional independent reality. Well, that gets you some really interesting ways of thinking about the ways that characters function and where they appear and what fanfic itself is and canonicity. Totally cool. But it also means that you lose some of these other, I think, much um, for me, much more important uh, kind of material historical contingencies. Right. And and more importantly for me, it makes you treat the text as a totality rather than like as a series of historically grounded speech acts that occurred, for lack of a better term. Right. Mm-hmm. Um but for but ultimately at the end of the day right it's like i think there's benefits and drawbacks but one is not like the good the good side and one is the bad side right mm-hmm. like ultimately the way you read the thing it has some material impact in the world but is not you know as important as a lot of other things you could be doing right we're ultimately re- reading a webcomic mm-hmm. uh and it might have some like kickoffs down the line but uh you know that the level of severity is is you know <laughs> not as important to maybe other things in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but, but so that's all to say, I, I've always been a little bit like, well, why are people reacting so strongly to this? Mm-hmm. And it is because the epilogues tell, tell them that I am evil. Right. Right. And so maybe I understand now. <laughs> people keep asking, like, why did Michael do all of the, why does Michael keep offering all these caveats and like being very clear mm-hmm. about kind of the Caliborian aspects of his relationship to this thing? Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah, as if yeah. like I knew I was assuming some sort of structural position uh, in order to talk about this thing that would make people see me as a villain. Huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, that it does make a lot more sense in retrospect the whole last year of my life. <laughs> um, you know, many of the things that have been said and have occurred uh and ultimately, I would say, right, that it's like, I mean, I guess you could see me as the villain of Homestuck. That's fun, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not that's not the worst thing to happen. Uh, but the other thing, too, is it's like this is also a reading strategy, and it's a way that the end of the thing is telling you to read the whole rest of the thing. And I, I think maybe I've just got, like, a skeptical approach to all things. Things tell you how to read them or tell you, you know, how to interact with them. But also you should develop like a heavy skepticism about the way the thing tells you to read it. Like, I think that's just a fundamental bone truth for me. Yeah. You know, this is what uh, James Paul G, you know, he calls like the the meta discourse, right? Like mm-hmm. you got to be able to like balance some different things to engage critically with the thing. And, um, you know, I think that's a good word for what I think is at least valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, holding some different methods together. And, uh, but I can't say it's not like a fun thing for, you know, the writing team to be doing here at the end. Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into candy, I guess, next, but I, uh, here at least because it does come up quite a bit. I wanted to ask what you thought about the way that, um, uh, troll stuff comes up here as like a generalized <sighs> stand in for all kinds of like social oppression, marginalization, exclusion, like concentration camps are showing up eventually in, in candy. Yep. Um, yep. Right. And this is, this has some weirdness to it uh, because, uh, because the human kids all have to be uh, unraced, right? This means that the trolls right. ipso facto become a stand-in for any raced population or any sort of race, right? Uh, like, well, they become a stand-in for women. Also, that yes, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, or uh, really, not even just a stand-in for women. They they become a stand-in for anyone who has like 
reproduction that can be taken away from them, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not just women. Um, but, you know, certainly in the discourse, thinking about when the thing comes out, right, the historical context, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, the, you know, the, this is in big quotation marks, but this is like the banner language, right? Women's right to choose mm-hmm. is on the, uh, the, the political chopping block and uh, has been chopped. Yep. You know, the Supreme Court, as of this, uh, as of the time of recording, has... Uh, made it clear that that is not a constitutionally protected right, that that uh, a human being's right to abortion or a human being's right to reproductive health care, uh, maybe even more broadly than that, determining how other decisions get made, um, that is not a part of the constitutional right, which it has been for about 40 years mm-hmm. or been interpreted as for about 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the trolls stand in for that, too. I mean, the, the key issue here for Dave uh, and how he like gets Carcat involved, right, is like, Carcat, they're going to take away your the trolls' ability to make more trolls, mm-hmm. right? Which, which, right? As you're saying, turns into like a racialized discourse mm-hmm. and a reproductive rights discourse. Like the trolls just become everyone who is in any way socially marginalized. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I think about that? I think that um, science fiction. I'm teaching a course right now that's called the Politics of Science Fiction, so I'm thinking about this quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I've been teaching it is that. You know, just like it's a it's a general course. It's not for students who have really ever had to think about this before. Um, science fiction often works through metaphor and allegory, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and uh, and um, uh, so a thing in the text stands in for other things. And as you're pointing out, that's happening here with the trolls. And sometimes that is extrapolative, meaning that it is directly tied to the conditions here, and we can see where that might go. Mm-hmm. So think about something like The Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. right? You know, a very linear extrapolation. Uh, what's the world we live in and how does it treat uh, women in a broad sense? Where might that go? Mm-hmm. You know, if if this is also often known as like a uh, if this goes on story, right? So the time machine is a quote unquote, if this goes on story, mm-hmm. right? If the class divide continues, then what will occur in the far future? Well, you'll have people on the surface being hunted and preyed upon by people below, uh, by the underclass. Okay, whatever. The other thing that happens, you know, and begins happening um, in the 60s broadly, right, is that there becomes much more socially conscious fiction. You know, uh, science fiction is always commenting on on society, but, you know, there's a uh, aggressive maneuver to do that. And they're reading the past 60 years of work and then they're remixing it and rethinking it. Right. So it becomes much there are fewer linear stories, I would say. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I teach Beyond Lies the Wub, which is, I think, a 57 story by Philip K. Dick. Uh, it's about these guys on Mars. It's about this domineering military captain who uh, who he's on Mars and they're coming back to Earth and they need to get some food. And so they get this big pig looking creature called the Wub. Mm-hmm. They buy it from the Martian natives. And like there's a there's a colonial kind of impression there. And they get it on the ship and it starts talking to them and it starts talking about like Odysseus and like all these like high cultured things. And the guy just wants to eat the Wub. He's just I got to eat that Wub. Mm-hmm. I'm going to eat that bad boy. It's a fun story if people want to read it. Um, and so, you know, you, and eventually he does eat the wub spoilers. He eats the wub and we find out that in its last moments, the wub has transferred its consciousness into the like military captain's mind. Mm -hmm. And so what, who, you know, the person doing the eating is actually the wub and now he's the military captain and he's like, now let us continue our conversation on Odysseus. And so it's like, uh Oh, he got what was coming to him. It's one of those. (laughs) Right. And pretty clearly, if you're reading it from the mindset of the 1950s, it's like, Oh, this is, this is not like an animal rights story. Uh, this is a story about domination, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and the military 
and like the way that people dominate other people irrationally and uh you know against their will and what if you reverse that it's a pretty what i would call a linear story and then you read something like blood child uh-huh. you know what i mean like like 30 years later and uh it, you know the kind of post 60s uh you know post 70s high conspiratorial whatever which is just as much a political story mm-hmm. right you know it has a politics it has an idea about what it's trying to say but it is not linearly allegorical and you know, Octavia Butler said very explicitly while she was alive, this is not a story about slavery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, aggressively, she said that. Mm-hmm. Explicitly and many times. And uh, even though if you're reading it linearly, you might, and if you know a little bit about about Octavia Butler, black woman who was growing up in the back half of the 20th century or, or is an adult in the back half of the 20th century, you might kind of read it flatly that way, right? Right. And she who says who, that is not the thing. I was going to say, to be clear, like, also, like, wrote other novels about slavery, right? Like, yeah, yes, uh, wrote, yeah, you know, eventually, I think, after Bloodchild writes Kindred, which yeah. is explicitly about slavery, mm-hmm. right? And ultimately, probably other than the parable books, is the thing that has, um, you know, been the most resonant in her work. Right. You know, I would say, like, in terms of, like, Bloodchild, Kindred, the, the two parable books, those are the things that people think about the most often. I'm sure that there is an Octavia Butler scholar right now who is listening to this episode who is just, like, seething at my... Um, um, you know, uh, flattening of all this story here. Well, I bring Apologies. it up if only because, like, one of the uh responses I have read from her uh re Bloodchild and it being about slavery is her mm-hmm. saying, like, listen, like when I wanted to write about slavery, I wrote about slavery. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, it, right. like there, but, there, are th- those stories exist. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm saying all this to say not just to like recount what's happening in my classroom uh, over the past several weeks, but but to say that. Uh, science fiction can do those things. It can be very linear or it can be very kind of ambivalent to speak to a lot of different things and purposefully speak to a lot of different things. And I think Homestuck has been really good so far in its science fiction-y kind of aspects, right? And and even in its like high fantasy mode too with like the cherub creation story and all of that about being pretty ambivalent, right? Like it, it it's extrapolating a lot of things, but they don't have really a one-to-one correlation. You can't kind of flatten it down into the trolls are X, Y, Z, right? Because the trolls are very big and wide and weird Mm -hmm. here in the epilogues the trolls are oppressed people full stop right and it's whoever you want them to be but it's almost like the x-men in that way right Mm -hmm. where it's just like whatever is convenient at that particular moment they are those oppressed people Mm -hmm. right um and they serve a story function that way and ultimately i think that it does a disservice to the the like alternia to the trolls their history to all that backstory shit we had to sit Uh through right like all of that is really flattened out to like, hey, here's the trolls, and now they're the the oppressed people, and Carcat is for some reason their, um, you know, uh, I mean, not for some reason, it's because his ancestors like the Jesus analog, right? right? Uh, in this, but he was the Jesus analog in a story that had like pirates and Death Star captains, <laughs> and you know what I yeah. mean, and like the Borg Queen, like all of these other science fiction and fantasy and mythological and religious allegories that are kind of fit into it, and, and Golden Age of Pirates and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turns something that's like a really interesting melange of references and, and stuff into something very flat. So that's all to say, uh, it, it certainly is here. I don't think it's particularly artful or interesting. And speaking of things I don't find artful or interesting, let's go into candy so we can talk about Gamesy. Uh-huh. So, uh... Wait, actually, sorry. Let me kick one thing back. I okay. need one sentence. All right. You ready? Okay. The best thing in meat is Dave's, like, nine-step plan for discovering that you're gay. <laughs> yeah, that is really good. 
<laughs> it's very funny. It's a re- it, that was the thing where I was like, this is this is this is it. This is the good stuff. This is where it's at. Oh god. But yes, we can talk about candy now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Gamzee. So Calliope and yeah. and this is this is another thing that feels like really uh loaded um and critical of basically like fandom impulses. Uh where Calliope is like, "Okay, you've decided, John, not to not to um go back into canon, not to fight Lord English, but you do have one task and that's please go back and get Gamzee. Please get Whittle Gamzee back. Bring him here to hey, us." Hey, look. I'm I that's me. Uh-huh. I'm saying, where's my beautiful boy? And so John goes back and he gets Gamzee and he brings him back. Yeah. And Gamzee is like trash. Uh, <laughs> He's great. <laughs> this is like, a, like, I'll be honest. I think that like the plotty plot stuff in Candy, I'm not interested in. But Gamzee being the, the most awful person who is literally in a redemption arc. Uh-huh. And every time he does something bad, he goes, but I'm in a redemption arc. Yes. I'm being redeemed. Like, that's really good. Uh-huh. That's very funny. <laughs> I'm in a redemption arc. Whittle me. I'm re- being redeemed. <laughs> Motherfucker. Yeah. And he and this is like what's so wild. It, like, this <laughs> feels like, you know, uh, uh, pointed at the fandom. Right. Um, is oh, that yeah. he is, it's, it is a shotgun pointed at the fandom because he is repeating things that the fandom has been saying for years to excuse the fact that Gamzee like went nuts and murdered everyone like right, all the right, stuff it's like right. my my Lucis like was a neglectful parent man like the the fact that he comes that's in the first stuff that he says uh-huh. he's like remember my traumatic backstory yes remember it I have a reason for doing it and I'm getting echoes here of risk risk and all that stuff too right mm-hmm. like it is actively making fun of that. Yeah. And, uh, and literally, he only does bad shit. Yes. <laughs> and every time he goes, but I'm Gamsy. I'm the little boy. I'm the little guy. So whatever that yeah, tweet is, yeah. right? I'm a little guy. Uh, and then he... um, uh, Although he is very tall. We know that. Yes. And then he's like doing like public, like he's basically doing like uh, uh, like tent revivals and shit, right? And like all of the <laughs> trolls that are falling from the sky, he's like getting, he's like, you get a redemption arc and you get a redemption arc. And he like makes, uh, uh, he's like as part of like the redemption arc for Aridin, he makes like Aridin and Feferi like hug it out and it's like extremely yes. uncomfortable for Feferi, but he's like, you're being redeemed. And again, it's all like. Like there were there were you know people who were really into Aridin from day one. Uh, pe- right. like like re- Aridin redemption was a thing in fanfic and fan art. Like shotgun at the fandom. <laughs> yeah, I, I it's very funny. Um, I uh, I enjoy it because of that kind of like uh, fuck you vibe to it a little bit, uh-huh. but also like it is a funny writerly thing to do to be like. Well, if this is what you want, you get it. I mean, here's the candy. Good luck eating all that candy. Uh huh. I mean, there, there's an irony to it. And that's why I was saying the beginning of this really does have this like, hey, remember when we introduced Calliope and she was one half of of a complete person, uh-huh. you know, or theoretically. and But like in the way that like Two-Face is one half of a complete person, uh-huh. right? Like uh, one is naive and a goofball, you know, like that's that's the Harvey Dent Two-Face story, right? Like Harvey Dent is naive in the face of Gotham City, mm-hmm. and it really is like it's the Dark Knight Harvey Dent. I don't know if this this is not I don't know this is not canonical Batman stuff, mm-hmm. right? In terms of like the big broad structure of the thing, but this is like particularly the Dark Knight, right? Like Harvey Dent is too naive to realize what he's up against, and Two Face is too violent to realize how he should actually deal with the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so Harvey Dent must be killed 
or Two Face must be killed or whatever, right? They are both one half of a complete person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how Calliope and Caliborn is, but over the course of the comic, as you've talked about, right? I believe this is my third time recounting yeah. this in this recording, sorry. <laughs> but Calliope becomes a little bit more of the thumbs up, mm-hmm. and Caliborn has to become Lord English, so he's like definitionally the thumbs down. Right. Um, and this is a little bit more of some sneaky sneak. Right. Like Calliope maybe is giving you the, the you know, the pharmacon, right? Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and like y- y- the the way that Candy works with um like sort of uh fanfic tropes or like the the certain things that tend to happen in fanfic, but also some other stuff that is just uh, it's so weird and so funny to me. So like on uh, uh, page 40, we get the introduction of like this side character named Swifer Eggmop. <laughs> Who's like, uh, uh, ju- yes, who like comes and disappears. Right. And it's just like, it's like a, a, a troll who is described as uh, the works in the brooding caverns caverns and is described as talking like a 1920s newsie. <laughs> and in fact does. <laughs> and so it's very much like a fan troll, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah here's like all these new characters. And then uh, once everyone starts having kids, uh, they start naming their kids after the characters from the comic. <sighs> yes. Which, yes. Which is like one, a fanfic thing, but also a Harry Potter uh book seven epilogue thing that people like really uh uh raked it over the coals for where you know harry has to get down in front of his son and say very sincerely to his to his uh young uh boy like albus severus potter (laughs) you're named after two of the bravest men i ever knew Got it. Right. Is this before he talks about where he's coming around on Thatcher? Uh, This is just before, actually. I think the Thatcher stuff comes in uh, after that, after he's like put them yeah. on the on the train and everything. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, it, right, it's it's that sort of thing, like the like the fact that like Jane and Jake have had a had a kid, and they're gonna name him Tavros. Uh, I mean, there is nothing more beautiful to me than than like Prime Vriska Prime becoming. Vriska, you know, oh, the parentheses. In, in parentheses, yeah, because she is the second Vriska in this yes. like plotline thing or this like universe. Very good. Uh-huh. Well, and also it's just all the YA stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, clandestine romances between teenagers, and they're constantly like inverse commenting on themselves of like about how hot they are, and they're like describing themselves as like hot and cool teenagers or whatever. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, we gotta go back to meat for a second. We didn't talk about Terezi and John. Oh, yeah. Death fucking. Uh-huh. I don't need... He's my beautiful boy. Why? I don't need that for him. Oh, well, th- this is... The, the the epilogues, and this is another thing that gets said around this and sort of the fan response. It's like the epilogues are intended for an older audience. Uh, and so Indeed. they're going to... Con- Truly. Surely they are, and they're going to contain, uh, uh, you know, some, some harder content. Uh... And I guess, yeah, I mean, that's true, right? Like, uh, and it sort of like works out for me as someone who was in his 20s when he started reading Homestuck and by this point is like mm-hmm. entering his 30s. Um, Written by, uh, at this point, 40-year-old person? Uh, yeah. Like, is Husty, is, has Hussey jumped over 40 by this point, uh, by 2019? Oh, gosh. Probably. Yeah, maybe maybe there. even that year. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like, okay, I understand that, but... Um, you know, uh, mostly it's kids who are reading Homestuck, and they might be interested in what's going on in these epilogues. I don't know if they're going to wait until they turn 18, so. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think you gotta, like, be 18 to do it, but it is, a, like, it's interesting to, like, hold in my mind my beautiful boy John, who's stuck at home with his cake flying out the window, mm-hmm. right? And then he's, like, mortally wounded 
fucking with Terezi at the end, mm -hmm. you know, and we're getting that like good old fa there's there's something so uh, interesting. We'll talk about this, I guess, toward the end, but like stylistically fanficy about the whole thing where there's like stock descriptions or words that are in here mm -hmm. and so it's like she bit his lip so hard that she tasted blood and then she started sucking his blood and now they're fucking you know what i mean like that's like kind of what happens in that scene mm -hmm. and it's just like so stock in a way and so i don't know uh i, I homestuck is a lot of things it isn't re a retread for the most part mm -hmm. you know what i mean like hussy has a way with language that i've been extremely complimentary of across the whole thing, Hussey is an amazing storyteller. And I think that some of the words on the page storytelling here are not up to the, the like bar that has been set, which is very high, mm -hmm. especially uh, dialogue wise mm -hmm. across the whole thing. And you can feel it. You can, and I don't know if that's like, uh, is that on purpose? Right. Or, or I guess there's a couple ways to think it, right. Is that because this is, canonically not canonical <laughs> right right it is fanfic therefore it's trading in some of the stock things that you would see in a twilight fanfic or, or whatever right mm -hmm. um or is it because there's an expanded writing team many of whom who come from that community and they're bringing that to it which like it's not a problem like mm -hmm. i don't i'm this is not a judgment on those things right i i but i do prefer the way that homestuck was written before rather than this but it's just, if this is just a different person writing it, it is what it is. And also it's a different mode, mm -hmm. right? Like I understand why that transition would change, but it is jarring if you're paying attention to the actual language that there are just phrases and, and moments and sections that show up here in a way that I just don't think would have showed up before. Mm -hmm. um, in, in that due to the kind of like textual strategies of Homestuck mm -hmm. or, or whatever, but sorry, sorry to, to suck us back into meat <laughs> on your point about, um, yeah. uh, you know, the the language of things and how like the language from Homestuck proper migrates to like this and uh, what I already said mm -hmm. about this being you know something intended for more mature audiences dealing with more mm -hmm. uh, uh, serious themes. Um, I will tell you because here we are. <clears throat> this is this is the point uh, in Candy where I realized I loved the epilogues. Now I don't know what that love means, <laughs> right? All the things that wait, which part which part in the epilogues are you referring um, to? Um it is is a bit you candy that I'm getting ready to read okay. to you. Like Oh, I'm sorry. Got so, it. So um <clears throat> how this worked for me is that there's actually a point in meat where like Dirk, after he's taken control of the narrative, says, like, if you want to go and check what's going on over in the other story, you can do that. Like, I'll be waiting mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Um and I was like, okay, this is really cool because like I said, it paid off all this like wizardy Herbert stuff for me. Um, so like at that moment I was like, okay, I just have to go see what's going on in candy just to like get the sense for like what is happening here. So I flip over and I start reading candy and, uh, uh, a couple pages in, uh, you know, uh, Dirk's kind of, uh, withdrawn from public life. So Jane's not going to run for president anymore. And then, uh, we have that really weird, uh, moment where she like is, is getting Jake into bed using the trickster lollipop. And then afterward, um, <clears throat> Jane, oh dear, did you hear? Uh, uh, actually, I forget this. Um, what page is this, by the way? This is on page 70. Okay, uh, page Jane 70. says, lighten up, Jake. The election's off. The economy is stable. Dirk is probably never going to talk to us ever again. And we just, we finally fucked. Hoo, hoo, hoo. 
that is the moment. Like, I remember sitting in the, uh, <laughs> I, I remember sitting in the hotel lobby. Wait, wait, wait let, let's, re- let's reenact. Okay. okay you ready? <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm, I'm, uh, we're in the hotel lobby. Uh-huh. We're there. It's in like some, uh, soulless place. It's probably fucking what? Shakespeare Association, MLA? It was the or, Shakespeare Association of America. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm over here. I'm like sitting beside you and. Well, I don't know. Uh, should we have Italian food? Uh, should we should we eat it? Oh, there's a new session starting in two hours. <laughs> uh, let's. Uh, oh, do we have enough time? Uh, it's eleven a.m. Should we get a beer? Uh, or you know, it's it's great. Uh, and then and then uh, uh, enter someone else. Um, hey, you hey you guys hear about Henry the Eighth? You hear about that? It's. Am I supposed to be reading this thing out loud to myself now? Yeah. Like, what's happening? No, you're t- you're reading. No, you're reading silently. Okay, okay. No, you you give me your reaction. Hold okay. on, let me let me get back into it. Uh, it's another one of the historical plays where he gives a speech. Wow, wow, I can't believe it. You guys wanna you guys wanna go eat donuts? We're in Toronto or wherever. It was Washington We're in Florida, D.C. Maybe. Actually. We're in Washington, D.C. Let's go see the Washington Monument. Let's skip out on this. We got our universities to pay for us to go here. Let's fuck off and leave and go do something else with our day. You having a good time? Yeah. You enjoying I'm it? I'm loving it. I'm okay. loving it. Like, good. I'm sitting there half hearing that and I'm reading and we just, we finally fucked. Hoo, hoo, hoo. <laughs> it's, it's, what a great and... Are people mad about it? Uh, I assume they are. I don't. So here, like what this does for me, right, is like I read this mm-hmm. and I am like, holy shit, because, very you, you know, I get I get a Homestuck montage in my head, right? It's like Michael mm-hmm. fast forward to now, like because it immediately mm-hmm. rubber bands me all the way back to like 2009, 2010 when this character was Nana Sprite. And I'm like, here I am 10 years later. And I am reading like this weird fucking internet novel about that grandma ghost who was a game <laughs> construct, the young teenage version of her who is still a grandma has grown up. And is also Betty Crocker. And, right. Has grown up and become Betty Crocker, who is evil. And now she's like, uh, uh, take it like sexually assaulted another character and uh, he's really uncomfortable with that. And her response and, and because like the, you know, the whole Jake Jane thing was like the the beginning of Act Six, right? This like heterosexual romance, like this mm-hmm. has finally been consummated. And her response is and we just we finally fucked who, who, who like <laughs> you're really missing the the laugh line here, which is. Did we indeed fuck? <laughs> Did we indeed fuck? Was it merely playing honky tonky with our digits? Yeah. What? What in the just? I mean, this is I why I did uh, at least enjoy the bewilderment of candy slightly more, mm-hmm. right? Like, what a fucking weird thing. Well, uh, just top to bottom off. Right. Well, and it's such for me in that moment, it's such a clear example of like the weird ways that Homestuck plays with effective connection for the readers, where like. Mm-hmm. You know, Nana Sprite shows up and like that's a total joke character, right? She's like a game yeah. construct, an NPC, and then she gets reformatted into this like actual character that I'm supposed to take somewhat seriously. And then that mm-hmm. actual character is being uh in this book, like pushed into these frankly weird and inappropriate uh uh spaces, uh in terms of like and I don't mean inappropriate as in like this like shouldn't have been written, but just like 
It's not yeah. like inappropriate is like it is not appropriate to like the textually existing character that we get from Homestuck. But uh, and it's trying to like I think, you know, it wants me to take at least some kind of uh, uh, gravity or solemnity or like, you know, emotional seriousness with the fact that like these characters have just had a, a really complicated and bad like sexual interaction that ends up going extremely worse for them later on. Um, but then also she's still going to laugh like who, who, who? Well, right, I, because there is a consistent universal, uh, you know, uh, like Jane, right? You know, well, it's a, I guess you know, like like within the narrative, you know, within the the construct of the fiction, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the idea. Like you have to be able to have the resonant thing, and it is. I think who knows who wrote this, right? You know, mm-hmm. like there's a writing team. I don't know who wrote which lines, right? But like this kind of like particular middle finger of a weird thing to write, it does feel pretty hussy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who can know? I mean, maybe that's that's part of the magic of the thing is like I I can get a vibe here in a general sense of like where I think things came from, but I can't definitively say and I wouldn't really be interested in it because the work itself is saying quit paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the imprimatur of, of Hussey is here, but the words, I don't know who wrote what. Yeah, it's great. It's good stuff. Yeah. And it just uh, uh, it really underscores for me, like one of the things Homestuck does is like basically push the reader's limits in terms of like what they're willing to accept. And this is like true from the beginning, right? These are things that people uh, uh, were talking about in the thread uh, during kind of like the big shift from uh, uh, fun time gamey stuff in Acts 1 through 4 into plot stuff and then into like teen romance, right? Uh, Homestuck is a thing that is constantly moving the goalposts in terms of like what it's expecting you to care about and how it's expecting you to care about it. Uh, And at the same time, it's going to insist upon the fact like – uh, it's going to insist upon like, oh, yeah, and these are like still the same characters and they have like these universal things that um, I think in any other kind of context, right? Uh, Jane going, who, who, who is a signal that like you shouldn't care about this. Like this is so totally right. absurd. Like it is impossible to actually have a sincere feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Candy plays with that kind of thing many times. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that there's there are multiple funerals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right and eventually like the characters themselves are being like this is ridiculous like uh, like these rainy funerals we are going to yes. <laughs> like why are we why are we still doing this um is it the uh is it i don't remember if it's it's meat or candy where i think it's toward the end of candy where dave is like uh roxy you're my dad now uh which one is no, that? that's the end of meat because that's where roxy transitions roxy doesn't transition in right, candy right. that's another thing right is right, that right, right, right. in meat people get to be uh non-binary or uh trans um and in candy everyone stays extremely well not extremely hetero i guess i don't i don't know what's going on with the gamzy jane jake situation <laughs> well it's a uh cuckolding thing yeah like that's the that's the joke of, at least to begin with right, right? like uh, and if you think about when this is written, I mean, you know, uh-huh. there, there's ways of playing with it. Oh, look, uh, there are things that happen in here that make them so of the moment and, in fact, resonant into our own moment that it feels like almost exploitative, uh-huh. such as people using the word woke. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say about it. Mm-hmm. I don't have more to say about it, but like... Uh, uh, the I we can clearly see the ironic usage of that already here. Yeah, it was already here the whole time. Uh, what what a beautiful maneuver from um something awful asshole poster vibes mm-hmm. from the all you know for acts one through three right we trace this very clearly in the show mm-hmm. to Twitter user asshole poster vibes. <laughs> 
And sometimes it's used sincerely, and sometimes it's used very ironically mm-hmm. um, and uh, almost negatively in a way that we could see now. Yep. So, yeah, anyway, interesting stuff going on here. I I really like the storytelling here around John getting married to Roxy mm-hmm. and that whole thing, and then having this secret time relationship with Terezi. Oh, yeah. No, that's really good. That's really good. Mm-hmm. That's cool stuff. Yeah. And it's like, it's it, good storytelling. And it's very like fanfic y, right? Of like, oh, the kids are grown up and they're getting married, but like John's not really happy. It's like, it's both fanfic y, but yeah. also like soap opera y. And it's, it, it yes. in a way that like uses all of like the unique Homestuck stuff uh, really well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. I think so too. Like, like it understands that like Candy is the soap opera side, right? Mm-hmm. It's the melodrama. And that's melodrama, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm in a relationship that I don't want to be in, and here's this little output that I can have. And look, he even, like, you know, Terezi dies and does all of that kind of stuff, and he even, you know, takes her picture up to, you know, he flies above the city and rips her picture apart and throws it to the wind, uh-huh. right? Like, that's melodrama for you, right? Uh-huh. Like, uh, but it works, like, in the same way that most of the melodrama works uh, in, in Homestuck, right? Like, even if in the times when it is happening, I don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's a lot of times that I've, I've mentioned it. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. And that doesn't mean it's not thematically appropriate. And that doesn't mean it's not part of the genre. Uh, I just don't always like it. But here I do like it. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite good. Yeah. Um, Solix is back. Do you remember Solix? <laughs> Solix is back. He's back for a little bit. And then he's like, OK, I'm done. <laughs> Which is his whole thing. Right. <laughs> it's constant. Solix's entire thing as a character is to be like, hey, I'm here and I'm integral and I'm done. <laughs> I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> I, this is the fourth time he's done that. Yeah, something. Uh, and then a radio. Yeah, like all this stuff where, um, I mean, so, you know, uh, uh, Calliope, or rather, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Calliope possesses this jade corpse, right? And is like speaking through mm-hmm. her and like the text turns red. And she explains how the world that they're living in is like, you know, it's it's basically like a, a fandom world, right? Like this this yep. this whole thing, this like world inside the the singularity is like allegorical for the world of fandom or fan production where like every single piece of fan fiction is happening at once. Yeah, it's a it is a dream bubble. Right. Uh with uh with a like actual time to it, right? Without the right, the kind right. of like weird nonsense, right? It's just like everything mm-hmm. is kind of like slowly unfurling into this kind of political hellscape. Um and uh yeah, Rose uh, talks with and John, right, increasingly starts thinking like, did I make like, did I fuck up? Right. Did I make a mistake in not going back to the narrative? Could things have turned out better? Um, and at one point, Roxy says, right, there's there's no better or worse. There's just different like uh, it, it, you know, it uh, which I took at the time, at least to be kind of saying like, you know, it's it's this isn't a situation where like, you know, one one of these narratives meet or candy is like the good one. And that's the one that like you need to go for. It's like these are two stories uh, that influence each other and they're just different. And like, that's what you should have to hold in your mind. Um, uh, And then we also like and we get sort of more of that from Rose talking about how even if uh. John thinks that this is all kind of like pointless nonsense. Uh, she feels happy with Kanaya because she gets to stay with Kanaya here. She gets to, you know, raise her uh, little kid, her little Vriska and everything, and also reflects on her own past. She also did this in Mead, of course, of writing her her old wizard fic, uh, which is, uh, you know, in in fiction, like presented as 
some other version of Wizardy Herbert as well, uh, which in the meat timeline, at least, she talks about how, um, uh, like, she felt like it was more honest, it was more straightforward, it was about, it was about children becoming corrupted by power, um, which of course has some, uh, uh, resonance with, like, what's going on in the meat timeline with Dirk and everything, uh, and here she talks about how in that story there was, uh, speaking of dream bubbles, um, a state that was akin to heaven that was entirely predicated on ignorance that like, uh, you could like live the perfect happy life. But the second you, uh, like learned something about it, uh, like the second you had knowledge, uh, you could no longer be happy. Um, mm. and she sort of positions herself as saying like, you know, I, like I, if if my life is kind of like a meaningless dreamy existence um i don't really care like i don't want to know like what's going on in uh some other timeline that's supposedly more real because i'm happy here hmm. i think that's sort of interesting and particularly mm -hmm. i think ultimately what this um what meat and candy do with uh like for instance roxy uh uh transitioning and using different pronouns and presenting in in like socially in different ways uh, mm -hmm. Where that all happens in meat and it doesn't happen in candy. And then eventually we have that uh, conversation with John and Roxy here where Roxy is just like, yeah, things could like they're like divorced and middle aged and uh, having a conversation. And uh, she's like, yeah, like I could have made different choices. Like I think about that all the time. There were things that I could have done differently that would have had different outcomes. And maybe I would have been happier, but I didn't make those choices. And so mm -hmm. like, I am who I am now and I'm willing to try to find out what it takes for me to be happy as the person that I am. That feels and ends up feeling resonant for me, at least um, in terms of like, you know, my own relationship to my queerness. And I've written about this a little bit. Uh, a couple years ago, I wrote a, an essay that was kind of a review of a book that I read about bisexuality. Um, and one of the things that I talked about there was a, uh, the ways that like doing historical research and like seeing kind of like in the history of humanity, how like sexual labels have like developed and changed and been lost, uh, meant that, you know, if I were born in, uh, the year 1500, uh, assuming that like I had the same desires and everything mm -hmm. that I would have now, like I wouldn't mm -hmm. be bisexual because the term didn't exist. And in fact, there were all sorts of behaviors that people used to do that we would retroactively label as bisexual. But like at the time it was just like, yeah, that's just what people do. Like it's not, right. and that's not to say it was necessarily better. Like obviously there were still like laws about buggery and things. Um, but there wasn't like an identity category that was used to like lock you into a certain place in society based on like your sexual pro proclivities, right? Because all of it was understood as like basically all of your sexuality was understood as a sin in one way or another, unless it was like good procreative sexual stuff under, you know, like medieval Christendom. Um, so uh, and that's not to say that like, oh, God, I wish I had been born in the 1500s, but it's like the the moment where I started putting this together in grad school and sort of realizing like the ways that history works um, because like the dealing with like my own identification and my own labels was such a fraught process. There was something very harrowing about thinking like had I been born 300 years before or 400 years before or whatever, uh like, I never would have had to have all of that conversation with myself. I would have definitely had conversations, right. but it wouldn't have been the one that I had. Uh, and I would never yeah. have had to, like, grapple with this label and what it means for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just, I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was a good way of uh, uh, sort of thinking about that. And I appreciated kind of the way that the, that the 
novel goes there. Um, then uh, Vriska falls down. She meets Gamzee, who's been uh, cut out of uh, the relationship. They have sex, like really violent sex, right. and then she strangles him to death. Yeah, talk about candy. Uh-huh. And also, like, the the way that that happens, like, again, I felt like I was reading someone's um, mm-hmm. personal fic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right? There's, like, this whole, like, uh, uh, wh- I don't know. It's not even, like, dom-sub thing. It's something more violent and different than that slightly. But mm-hmm. uh, And then it gets, like, explicitly made clear, too, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, it occurs and then it happens and then it's explained to you, uh-huh. uh, you know, and that's like just buried in here, which is, which is also interesting, I guess, but yeah. also a thing where I was like, I feel like I'm reading a different thing yeah. now. Um, well, and then Obama, you want to talk about the big, and, and then Obama. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You want to talk about the big reveal <laughs> and then the other big reveal, <laughs> literally yeah. a reveal. I laughed out loud. Uh huh. Not Obama. Obama is interesting, but I did not laugh about yeah, it. Yeah, so uh, this is another thing from Wizardy Herbert. I mentioned this on the main episode, is that a, a subplot in Wizardy Herbert that is completely weird, and I have no clue where it was going to go, uh, but it was about Ronald Reagan uh, right. being in the Oval Office and being in some way aware of like whatever like fantasy science fiction bullshit is going on in that story. And like, I think I talked about this, like the it's implied at some point that like the United States and like the USSR were like moved into like basically Fantasia from the never ending story and started doing the Cold War there. And like Ronald Reagan was uh, integral to this because he read uh, or like somehow connected to the never ending story. And then eventually characters um uh, find well the ruins of the oval office are discovered uh and there is a thing that is the only way i can describe it is like it's it's ronald reagan's like secondary god tier body that he uh uh had uh secreted away for himself and it goes god tier the moment he dies in like the real world um right so like i i don't know what's going on there where where it was going to aim but here we revisit that uh kind of scene uh with uh, Dave finding the Oval Office and meeting a uh, holographic projection of Obama. And this, the, the Obama dialogue was written by Hussey. Okay. Uh, what do you, what do you think about this? Cause there, there are some theories about what's going on here. I don't have any theories, I guess. It mm-hmm. just feels like a silly thing to be in. I, I mean, I'm sure there's like some resonant reason for this. Mm-hmm. He is Dave's favorite president. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like I, I got here and I was like, all right, this is like a funny idea, <laughs> but is ultimately like, I guess a character payoff. Like, but again, I think about like, just in a general sense, is it better for me as a reader, mm-hmm. if the payoff to Dave's plot is what happened in the main comic or the payoff to Dave's plot is a long conversation with Obama mm-hmm. or Obama. And I know the answer. <laughs> I know the answer to that. Well, like where where Obama is basically like, you know, you got to embrace your destiny and go kill your brother. <laughs> right. Yeah. Can I uh, can I also tell you a weird thing? Sure. This is the end of Assassin's Creed 2. With Obama? Not with Obama, oh. but with like the pre the precursor species and all that kind of stuff. Oh, right? like okay. the, the Isu showing up and she in Minerva is like, you know, it's the stored 
narrative and uh, talking to Ezio, but really talking to Desmond and really talking to us. You know, there's mm-hmm. like this this whole kind of thing going on here. But the idea of like you go down into the secret, you know, world behind the world and you find the thing uh, that's the the remaindered ruined, and then there is like the perfect thing waiting for you there to kick the plot along and then push you into the next plot. Mm-hmm. That's this the end of Assassin. It's actually the end of like half of the Assassin's Creed games. But to me, I was like, Obama's the Isu. <laughs> I was here. I was going to be really uh, delighted and surprised if Obama had shown up in Assassin's Creed, which I feel like you know is in some ways like on a long enough yeah. time scale. Assuming they're making these games is inevitable, but Assassin's well, Creed yeah. Two would be really quick out of the gate to get your Obama in. <laughs> it, it would be. Uh, yeah, I don't know if Obama's it. I mean, Scalia was a Templar. We know that. Like, <laughs> it, like it, it did get, it has gotten pretty contemporary. Yeah. But I can't remember if Obama should. I haven't looked that up. Okay. Uh, that would have been in one of the more recent games if it is. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Scalia, and I believe Scalia's death is in there too. <laughs> uh, but I'm not 100% about that. Great. But certainly he was, he is canonically a Templar. That is, that is true. Um, but uh, you know, nothing's true. Everything's permitted except the fact that Antonin Scalia was a Templar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, anyway, so that occurs. Dave gets a robot body. Mm-hmm. Unless you have other things to talk about, we can talk about the other thing. Um, yeah, so just a few more things to talk about here. Uh, there's sure. an implication that Obama and Jake are related. Did you Great. catch that? Yeah. No, I didn't. Uh, cause this is, there was a, uh, an ARG that ran, uh, prior to the epilogues dropping, it was called Skynet Systems, and it was, uh, again, hugely controversial and uh, uh, eventually got stricken away as, like, non-canon, uh, basically on a website <laughs> that uh, you could, like, dig around. It's funny how many of these things are like, and eventually it was dismissed as non-canonical. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's like we're in the Star Wars universe over here. <laughs> Uh, it was like a, a whole bunch of like text logs that you could unlock that basically told the entire history of Earth and like, you know, explained like the Condess had been around for a long time, like doing all her stuff, like waiting to spring her trap and take over the world and do all that juggalo presidency bullshit. Because, um, you know, like basically, Cameron, you know how much we loved that. Well, what if we had that for like the entirety of like world history from 1800 forward? Um, cool. And right. it, and uh, ended up being controversial because like the juggalos are like in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, uh, no. So like things that happen is like the Condess is like taking. Uh, she's like enlisting uh old style comedians to like be her henchmen. So it's like Laurel and Hardy and shit. Oh, I think I, I'm good. Okay, yeah, I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. I understand what you're saying now. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say like uh you know whatever you know they fire the the cannons in Hong Kong Harbor and we look over and <laughs> the, the juggalos are there. You know, it's like what what <laughs> but anyway yeah uh and uh, uh the the stuff that like ends up being truly offensive is like uh of course like every event in in like modern history uh is something that the condess set off and one of those things is like she she had like both hitler and einstein are working for her i think this is like don't correct me on this because it's also stupid um the point is uh World War II happens, and specifically... Hit- oh, wait, I gotta go back. I'm so sorry. I said uh-huh. Hong Kong. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, that that Perry does that in Japan. He doesn't do it in Hong Kong. Oh, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm flipping my uh, colonial expropriation. Ah, uh, there we go. Uh, so, uh, uh, the Holocaust happens in Homestuck's continuity uh, because... Uh, I, I don't... Don't Please don't tell me. Okay. I, I don't want to know I, this. This will like harm me in a way I'm not prepared for. Basically, uh, uh, what ends <laughs> up happening is that 
Uh, the Holocaust happens because Hitler was really angry at a Jewish man. And that Jewish man was Albert Einstein. And he did the Holocaust to get back at him. I love that you can't help it. I like it. Like it's it's so poison uh-huh. that you can't help but I, tell me. About I have it. to vent it. You have to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm so, car. I'm car catting out over here. Mm-hmm. I'm freaking. It's it's awful. And also, like the Condess is constantly like taking men as like uh, uh, sex slaves and things. So, hmm. Um, oh, I see. So that's the, that kind of sets up for the the Jane yeah. Jake thing that happened. I got it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, like people really don't like this stuff and they are really not happy about like the way that the Holocaust is reduced to like a joke. Uh, because the other thing about Einstein is that the reason Hitler doesn't like him is that Einstein is a fraud. Literally, he's not a genius. Like he's just like getting all of his stuff from, uh, the Condess or whatever and passing off the work as his own. Uh, so just lots of, lots of, uh, uh, cries go out and Hussey, uh, eventually like walks this back and apologizes for it. But one of the other things that comes up in there is that like, uh, in the, uh, first version of earth that we saw when Jake was an old man, you know, the old, uh, Nigel Thornberry type character, mm-hmm. he spent like his youth traveling the world and, uh, uh, siring illegitimate children, uh, Two of his illegitimate grandchildren. No, no, no. There is. Yeah, there, two of his illegitimate children are the uh, protagonists of Hive Swap. So that's where it ties into like the larger Homestuck continuity. And also, like, apparently, uh, Obama is maybe one of his illegitimate children. Hmm. Uh,. All that stuff is sort of mentioned. Uh, the other, like, key thing about this scene uh, that people. Uh, lock on to our sort of interpretation of it is that this was all set up by Dirk in order to get Dave to do what he wanted, uh, which is like why there's a robot body that Dave has to transfer his consciousness into because uh, we heard earlier, I think in this timeline, uh, something about there, there's a bit where like Dave is talking about Obama and Carcat is like, shut up. We've already heard enough about your Obama head cannons because uh, Dave is like, do you think mm-hmm. Obama played Spurb? I mean, he was up to a lot. He was, yeah, watching from the Didn't shadows. he play Spider-Man? <laughs> Am I making that up? I don't know. Is there, like, footage of this? Hold on. I just, for some reason... No, he was just in a comic book with Spider-Man. Oh, okay. I don't know why in my head I was like, he played the Spider-Man video game. <laughs> I don't know why I made that. We've been talking for three hours. That's yeah, why I did I'm that. Sorry, because yeah. my brain is uh, is fried. Barack I'm Obama appearing horns. on Giant Bomb to give a preview of the latest Spider-Man game. That'd be cool. <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I'd, I'd watch it. <laughs> Look, uh, uh, FYI, Giant Bomb. I don't know about now. I don't know about, like, post, 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 many uh, leavings and layoffs. But, like, go back to 2011. Mm-hmm. Get Obama on there. <laughs> I'll go back and watch it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, so, uh, Obama convinces Dave to go off and fight Dirk, which of course Dirk in the meat timeline, if you've read that first, like, is that like, that's a thing Dirk is looking forward to, right? He knows he's made them, himself the villain. So he just is waiting for Dave to come cut off his head. That is explicitly what he says. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, some people say that, uh, this Obama is just like a, a little Dirk mechanism. Hmm. Um, he also explains like how you need to keep hoping Dave. That's what hope is. The hope aspect is about the possibility of the future, etc. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some cruel optimism there. Uh, if you just keep doing the same things that we've already been doing, they might work again. Uh, and then... Yeah. 
What what if you rewrote the comic like nine times uh-huh. <laughs> and represented the same like author audience antagonism and then intra audience antagonism through, I don't know, six different characters? Mm-hmm. Woo-hoo-hoo. Speaking of, that's the next big reveal with Aradia hanging out with a uh, cherub possessed Jade uh, and uh, Calliope Jade gives uh, uh, our great big final reveal, which is not much of a reveal again if you've already read Meat, uh, which is that. Uh, unreliable narrators exist. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's not a reveal, but like to have a character, it's different than what happens in me. In me, it just does the thing, mm-hmm. which is fun. Like you go, of course, there's a character doing the thing. Uh, because we've had, I don't know, we had Hussy, and we had the prom. Uh, actually, no, we had the Exiles. Right? We had the mayor, mm-hmm. which that's got to be the last thing we talk about in this episode, by the way, is the mayor. But we had the mayor telling John what to do, and then we had Hussey telling everyone what to do. We had Caliborn telling people what to do. We had Jack Noir telling people what to do. We had uh, Doc English telling people what to do and making Hussey do stuff. <sighs> Who else? Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to... Oh, wait. Did I say Doc English? I meant Doc Scratch. Um... I'm sure other people were telling other people what to do. We, and we eventually had an even higher metaphysical, uh, you know, narratorial character who was yet unnamed telling Caliborn what to do. Mm-hmm. And that might be it. I don't There might be some others, right? But like we have had the the person who tells the story is the person who determines what occurs often against your will. Mm-hmm. We've had that happen many times. Mm-hmm. And this is presented here. As if it is the most mind-blowing piece of information you could ever encounter in the whole... Con- the, it feels like, and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe other people read it differently, but like just straight up reading it through, meat first, then candy second, it feels like this is supposed to be like, did you know that there's a key to reading all of Homestuck? Mm-hmm. And the key to reading all of Homestuck is understanding that the narrative voice tries to naturalize itself and obliterate itself and in reality, it is from a perspective, and they're making you do what you're supposed to do, or what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Oh, my God. And it's, yeah, we, I do. It's, I learned it in the ninth grade. Uh-huh. When, when I read An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge mm-hmm. <laughs> that told me about, like, what a narrator is. Right. Yeah, I did know, I did know that. And I'm not, like, I'm not saying that, like, if you read this and you found it powerful... And interesting, I, I'm I, like what I'm saying sounds like kind of rude, and I guess it is kind of rude. I, I I apologize if you're taking it that way, but but it really is like this is not an astounding thing. This is a thing that you learn in English courses, or at least I learned in English courses in like high school. Like I had to read The Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. The Catcher in the Rye is about the person who tells you the story might not have your best interest as, as a reader at heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I read Dear Mister Henshaw. When I was like in the fourth grade, mm-hmm. which is about like a kid whose parents are getting divorced and he's like trying to navigate his life. And it's pretty clear in that book. I remember very explicitly, you know, in elementary school reading that and being like, oh, he has a perspective on this world. And that perspective is being developed over the book. And what we've learned at the end is maybe he wasn't entirely like objective about it. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Yeah. Like this is just like a, a standard part, I think, of like the way that we read books. 
And it is treated as if I'm being like clobbered over the head by a tea kettle yeah. of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really interesting, right? And the way that I took it uh, when I first read it was um, basically Hussey trying to be as explicit, or, you know, maybe Hussey, but maybe like the writing team or whatever. Like uh, it felt like uh, because this had been so clearly present in like every single aspect of Homestuck up until this point, um, one of the ways that I took it at, at this juncture was like, mm-hmm. I am telling you this in the most explicit way possible. So uh, you will finally get it. You being like, I, I assume that there was like some, some imagined reader is the you here, right? That there were readers who were not cottoning into what this thing is trying to tell you, which is that like all narrators of any sort of story have a perspective and you need to figure out what that perspective is like you, you but also like you need to be clear to or be sure to like hold yourself apart from a story or apart from a narrator Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right Um, yeah and they all have like each narrative voice has kind of a different set of desires the narrator of candy is different from the narrator of meat because they have different narrative desires Mm -hmm. they produce different worlds like the thing you're you're producing as a writer uh, and then like a narrative voice within that writing produces like different outputs Mm -hmm. and those are like baked in Mm -hmm. in some ways into like the words that are on the page Okay, I I can see exactly what you're saying, right? That that this is meant to be like the not like a revelation, mm-hmm. but like a just so we're all clear on what the rules have always been, right? Blah 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 blah. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, that makes more sense to me. That that is a more charitable and and uh, less rude ass way of putting it than I did. I think that that's I think that's right. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, that was how I was sort of understanding it. But then also it does the move that I've kind of called out before, which is that immediately it moralizes this because the way that this works right. out is it's a conversation between Aradia and uh, Alt Calliope by way of, you know, Jade Corpse, um, where uh, Calliope like tells a story and she turns her voice into like the narrative text, right? Her It goes like straight uh, black typeface um, and she tells the story of the sufferer. Um and she goes through it like she's telling the whole thing. Uh, you know, a martyr died and said, fuck, blah, 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 blah. Uh, his hope echoed throughout the ages. It gave his disciples the strength to persist as they perished in droves. It was the only light to shine on a dark planet for millions of sweeps. And if you are uh, one so devoted to his teachings, who sees truth in his words, it may be said with great authority that and then uh changes back to her normal red text. You are wrong. You are foolish to believe his lies. His martyrdom is false. His sacrifice hollow. Repent for your adherence to this illusion now, and perhaps leniency will be your reward. Um, and this immediately, like, she, she, like, works this into, like, the whole thing that she's got going on with Dirk that, um, the way that Aradia talks about it, she's like, oh, it's like you were telling a story, and then it turned out you weren't sympathetic to the story you were telling at all, and you, like, revealed that to me. Um, and then Calliope is saying like, yeah, like, uh, uh, there are, there are people who would tell stories who have designs or aren't sympathetic to the stories that they are telling, or perhaps, you know, not sympathetic enough who aren't maybe playing by the rules that you think should be played by when the story is being Mm -hmm. told. Um, Mm -hmm. and those people are, are like enemies. They are people who need to be, uh, confronted in some way. And I mean, (laughs) Okay, like that that can be true for like what is happening in this story, right? We can have a story that is about that, but I don't know how I feel about um 
the ways that this, uh, like the meta text here, the way that it works out uh, and operationalizes what are fundamental aspects of anybody reading anything, right? Like right, every right. everything that you can read has an implied author. And uh, what this ends up doing is like pointing at the, the structural feature of fiction, which is that fiction has an implied author and being mm -hmm. like, uh, they're going to get you here. <laughs> like, uh, you got to watch out for this, which I, uh, I talked about this on like one of the just King things bonus odes, right? As a, a kid, I read a whole lot of Ayn Rand and that was very instructive and, and informative to me, uh, because that is, uh, so dogmatic, right? It is programmatic mm -hmm. literature. She is teaching you an ideology, uh, and you can, like, read very clearly, like, how that ideology is baked into the narratorial apparatus. Like, which yeah, it is it is the definition of propaganda. Yes. Uh, and so, like, you know, which characters are good, which characters are evil, how are they described, blah, 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 blah. Like, this made me, uh, weirdly enough, very sensitive to uh, just how this works in all fiction, right? That all fiction carries a perspective because Rand is so... Uh, adamant about like that's what her fiction is there for to get you to mm -hmm. agree with her um, yeah that it was like oh okay you can actually take this out because I learned what ideology was uh, mm -hmm. and I was like oh you can actually do this with all kinds of fiction like what is anything I read what is it trying to get me to believe right I play along with it enough to figure out what it seems to want and then I get to make a judgment about whether or not I agree with that mm -hmm. um and like, like, that's what reading fiction is to me. Like, that's what's fun about it. And uh, this kind of presents it as a, a, a life or death matter, which, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I think it's important, but um, I'm not going to go out there and say that, like, oh, people are telling stories wrong because uh, I don't know, like that. That was part of my Caliborn arc, right? Is like I, right. I had that feeling. I was like, why are these? These people are doing things wrong. They're telling uh, uh, all these fanfics, all this fan art. Why would you do that? And I was like, oh, yeah, like, no, we're all just kind of like engaging with it and having fun. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it is not like you said, it's not. I mean, I guess that's the the tricky part, right? Because within the characters, within the fiction who espouse the philosophy of the thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and there's there's a long, Ayn Rand is a part of this, right? You know, I mentioned Philip K. Dick much earlier in the show, right? I mm -hmm. mean, that's his thing. He just has characters just espousing things he believes, right? right? Like, it's, you know, it's, I guess, you know, a part and parcel of something like ideological fiction, mm -hmm. right? You know, instructive fiction, whatever, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and, uh, you, you know, the, I guess the interesting thing about it is like, the you can do two things with that you can go oh this is an interesting perspective i don't think that's right you know or i do think that's right and then you can have like an affective response right which is like i like this and i think it's like well done or i think this is annoying mm -hmm. or or i think this is a rug pull or i think that this is like plot critical right like there's all kinds of i guess like ethical or or readerly decisions you can make right you know judgment calls whatever mm -hmm. um but homestuck is kind of continually because of what you're saying right like he continually does this where there are life or death stakes within the comics or within within the, the story there are mm -hmm. life or death stakes with characters mm -hmm. uh who then are talking about a thing that ultimately really matters the most on the meta level right mm -hmm. like when you read homestuck if someone's telling you about the way stories are told, you you are immediately asked to think about the way the story you're reading is told, right? Mm -hmm. 
And then it uses that to draw targets on other people. Mm -hmm. And we've remarked on the many times that that has happened over the comic and how weird it is um, and how much it seems like it is geared toward, you know, earlier in the comic, what we called like geared toward engagement. Mm -hmm. And then later what we kind of said might be geared toward getting people to harass one another. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and I will say, you know, if this is broadly, you've mentioned this a couple times, if the epilogues are kind of centered around the question of, how do you keep the dream alive, right? Like, mm-hmm. how does the Homestuck intellectual property stay alive? The thing that Homestuck has continually gone back to is getting people to point at one another and complain about each other as engagement. Uh-huh. And this is a way of 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 giving a method to reading every form of engagement with Homestuck as either good or bad. And in, importantly, it's ambivalent. Like, you are left to determine what you think fits in the good and what fits in the bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to read this conversation, which which flatly, to me, is like something that is bones apparent about fiction, mm-hmm. okay? Like, of course, there's like a narratorial voice, and you have to think about what it's saying. But then the additional layer is, that, as you're saying, right, it's moralized. There is a a, a, a good method and a bad method but that is like content agnostic. Like you fill in what you think is the best way of approaching the good method. And you fill in what you think is the the worst way of approaching the bad method and go forth and speak to other Homestuck fans. Right. Um, and like I've, like I've said a couple times, a lot about the home, the epilogues makes it a lot more clear about some how some people have engaged with me specifically uh-huh. <laughs> in this thing, right? Like I'm the bad reader and I'm, I'm maybe reading it the bad way. And that act actually has like destructive potential for them right Mm -hmm. um which is fine they believe that and you know what i'm you know i'm i'm an adult (laughs) like (laughs) i can take it uh but uh but like i just don't agree with that like i i think that's like not the way i read literature and i don't i again to go back to what we're talking about earlier there's positives and drawbacks to reading methods and i think if you've got one tool for engaging with all of fiction and you derived it from homestuck maybe worth engaging with some other tools. And I, what I think probably the most gratifying thing about doing the entire show here at the end of 13 episodes and more than a year of basically every day, you and I talking about Homestuck in some form or function, right? <laughs> Just to, to, you know, put it all on the table. There probably has not been a single day for more than a year that we have not at least talked about Homestuck in some way, mm-hmm. right? Uh, probably the best thing about it is the output is, is people saying, Hey, this has been a really interesting way to be uh, introduced to other ways of reading Homestuck. And uh, thinking about the thing I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't really ask for more than that, right? Right. Um, and I don't even need to, like, displace this, right? Like, if you read Homestuck in the epilogues and you get here and you go, yeah, this is the magic. Good. Okay, whatever. You know, like, uh, we will probably never engage with one another again. Like, uh, positive or negative, right? But, like, around the question of Homestuck, probably won't ever happen. But hopefully you're this podcast as a show has given you some other ways of thinking about it and maybe demonstrated or, or hopefully at least argued for some of the drawbacks of what is presented here, which I think we both find very limiting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like you I don't need to fight with people on the internet. I read like I read so much Ayn Rand and her entire thing is about like, here's how you can divide the world into good and evil people. And like, I'm yeah. giving you the tools to go out into the world and fight these evil people. And at a certain point, I was like, man, I don't think this is great. Like, I think I need to like disengage from this because it sounds kind of like bullshit. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not as like trauma. I also read a lot of Ayn Rand. I'm not as like traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you wouldn't use that word. Right. But it, it like it doesn't have as much of a like 
negative impact on me as that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but but yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in. We've talked about this before. You know, I grew up in the conservative Christian South, and uh, you know, saw a lot of people get uh, have a lot of really bad things happen to them because of you know being around people who are fundamentalist fundamentalists about a lot of things mm-hmm. right um and that definitely probably as much as Ayn Rand impact uh, Ayn Rand and and her literary imagination impacted you the idea of a uh manichaean stricture that that uh must be placed on everyone all the time and uh police out anything about them that doesn't fit into what is uh white straight uh you know cis- normative all these words, right? Like, you know, uh, able, mm-hmm. like all this kind of stuff. I saw that all the time. And I, you know, uh, I firsthand got to see a lot of just horrifying things, things that really I only understood is actually, I understood them as bad at the time, but I did not understand them as horrifying mm-hmm. until later in my life. Right. And, and that certainly impacts the way that I read this too. Right. Where it's like, wh- whenever there's an iron cage of meaning, uh, and, uh, the only way out is to accept the iron cage of meaning, I start like, you know, rubbing up against that a little bit and start trying to think, well, are there other ways to do it? And that might just be like the Gen X hangover, Mm -hmm. right? Like neither of us are Gen X people and we are like solidly millennials, but I think we grew up in that culture. Yeah. uh, In the media culture of Gen X, certainly. And I think that's part of it. Yeah. Like Reality Bites lives inside of me somewhere (laughs) and it's got its own like little, you know, house in my heart. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's where the epilogues leave off. Uh, just here in a chunk at the end, I can talk a little bit about the fan response. Already said, many fans dislike it. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a few months after the Tumblr porn ban. So uh, I feel oh, like the center yeah. of fandom shifts sort of to uh, like Twitter and discords by this point. Mm-hmm. Um because uh, definitely, like, in the Something Awful thread, uh, they're not like, oh, Tumblr's burning about this. They're just, they're not even talking about Tumblr. Uh Weirdly enough, the Something Awful thread, like, there are complaints about this. A lot of it is like, man, I don't know about this content. You know, they're, they're like, this feels like mind control fetish fiction. But overall, um, uh, response in the thread, like, I, I mentioned that the thread went rancid, uh, uh, you know, last part episode. Uh, by 2019, the thread is really mellowed. Like, it's just, like, the people who are there just to be haters have kind of drifted away. Um, and now uh, it's just kind of like people being like, oh, there's more Homestuck. Let's check this out. Oh, that kind of sucked. Well, bye. Uh, or some people being like, well, I thought that this was interesting and this was interesting. And overall, then, the thread has kind of a, a very modest reaction to it. And they're surprised at how negative uh, some of the other fan reactions are. Uh, there are people who are... um. Uh, you know, just like adding all of the writers that they can, adding Hussey. I, I, when I, when my Vice piece went up, I got a few of these people who were just like suddenly popping up into my mentions to be like, "But did you?" Because you know, my my piece on Vice, uh, which I, you know, basically read Homestuck as kind of an allegory for like the ways that the internet has changed since I was a kid, right? That that is like, right. if there's one way of understanding Homestuck that I think is like interesting, like if you've ever wondered why would someone care about Homestuck, for me at least, this is why, right? It can be a map yeah. for me to explain like how this thing that has been such a huge part of my life uh, shifted underneath me uh, over the decade or so. Um, so I'm like, I, I deliver this reading and I get these people in my mentions who are like, oh, but, uh, what about the fact that like, a a, a queer character gets turned evil, right? Like the, that mm-hmm. Dirk becoming a villain, like it, this is just clearly something that like this person does not like, and they understand it through this mm-hmm. kind of lens of like representational politics. Um, yeah. 
Which is fine. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, it's just like, th- like, that's one thing among a million things in this right. that seem uh, uh, tailor made to like set off precisely that reaction in the fandom. Right. right. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of sort uh, of like <laughs> digging in on if you if you don't like this, it's because it doesn't have to be for you. But also it's for a more mm-hmm. mature audience, which can carry its own kind of like, you know, little mm-hmm. backhand kind of thing. Yeah, we've talked about that before, right? Mm-hmm. That like the uh, the like the word mature and like slapping that onto something uh, ha- implies a hierarchy of like matureness versus non seriousness, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I think the way I've put it before, maybe you put it this way. I don't remember which one of us was, but it's like, why is the darkest and most depressing version of a character the one that is m- most mature and true? That, right? <laughs> that was that was quite literally you, but. Now, in the pure Homestuck move, I'm going to take credit for it. I, you've assigned it okay. to me, and now, <laughs> retroactively... That's you can have it, uh-huh. yeah. That's all right. Retroactively, that, that was me speaking through you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so... Uh, I feel like I've been manipulated this whole time. <laughs> this Dirk thing's really given me a lot to think about. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, all these, all these jokes and japes you make, uh, there's a lot of like weird feelings about the epilogues, strong reaction against them. There's huge, you know, chunks of the fandom who just like hate the epilogues and, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically don't count them as part of like their own little Homestuck constellation. Uh, mm-hmm. the story of the epilogues is briefly continued in Homestuck 2 or Homestuck Squared, uh, which is a team of fan writers and fan artists. Um, and, you know, I think unfortunately because of the negative feelings about the epilogues, uh, they get carried over to Homestuck 2 in a lot of ways. And so a lot of people mm-hmm. on that team end up being subject to harassment um, for, you know, they, things happen in Homestuck 2 that uh, people who are reading it don't like. And guess who's responsible, right? It's the person telling the story. Uh, right. who's not telling it correctly. They're not doing the, the, it's not engaging with the fans in the correct way, for instance, right. In the way that, uh, some right. imagined version of Hussey would have done it. So, and yeah. And so you, I, I'm assuming that there's like huge waves of harassment. That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of stuff that I've caught here and there, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, like before we did the show, right. You know, occasionally you just see this like huge vent about Homestuck two or whatever. And you're like, well, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. But the uh but you know worth noting right that if you are a figure like hussy mm-hmm. right who is known for your thorny relationship with the fandom uh-huh. and and provoking that fandom and uh like purposefully sometimes right and knowingly mm-hmm. right you know that's a lot of those form springs are kind of talking about that and uh you know receiving a huge amount of harassment i'm no i'm in no way saying like hussy deserves it right but the there's a relationship that is thorny and confrontational and adversarial that we've pointed out many many times and that has ended up in like real harassment that is uh unacceptable um and horrifying so you know that as a creator you know that you have a fan base that will interact with you in that way especially if you don't like it right mm-hmm. you know it seems like homestuck's got a lot of people who like to push buttons mm-hmm. as, as a thing that i think i can feel confident in saying um I mean, what's the expectation when you hand it over to another group of people? Exactly. Right. right. And like the expectation is not like they're going to stick on hussy. The expectation is you're like, you know, g- giving them <laughs> this like poison chalice of of uh, creative control, but also um, people who are uh, who only spend their time harassing 
uh, Hussey and and other people, right? Right, like, right. Like this is that, that seems clear to me. That's sort of what's so so disappointing about like what happens with Homestuck mm. too, because I think it's kind of a neat idea. Mm. Like, oh yeah, like this little team of fan creators is going to kind of do uh like this this weird take on the epilogues or like post epilogues. Okay, neat. Um, yeah, and you can imagine a place where it's kind of like the Paradox Space comics, uh-huh. right? Where it's like here's a bunch of different stuff, and let's just take a bunch of swings. And if you're still into Homestuck, it seemed like whether people liked or didn't like the paradox space comics, like there are some really fun ones in there and I would read more of those. Yeah. You know, like, okay, sure. Yeah. But speaking of, right, I was there for the summer of paradox space and I read that mm-hmm. thread where it seemed like somehow we'd broken into this pocket of, uh, there, like the the utter disdain and ire and hatred that people seem to be able to summon about people who weren't Andrew Hussey telling Homestuck stories, right? Right. right. Um, it it uh, really emphasizes for me, uh, just like man, I like what did you expect to happen? And or I wish there had been some cognizance of this so that there would have been more fail safes in place or like safeguards uh so that these people wouldn't have to face all this harassment um but uh that's just not the way that it turned out unfortunately yeah i don't think there's any way to do that Uh, i mean i i i find that admirable that what you're proposing but i i don't think that's right right yeah no i don't think there is either so you know it's almost as if like I would simply have not have done it, uh, as someone once said. Right. I wouldn't have made Homestuck. Yeah. I, I said yes, yeah. indeed. I simply would not. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So that's like super disappointing. Homestuck two is now on you know, indefinite hiatus. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't like still a Homestuck community because, as we've seen, even in the process of doing the show, there are still people like making new fan adventures or kind of like uh, uh, their own AUs. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there, it's clear now to me very much so in a way that it wasn't before I was doing the show, like how generational the Homestuck fandom is, um, where like, you know, there are people sort of like me who were there for the main thing and, uh, maybe lasted into some of the post canon stuff. And then there are people who were like even younger who like read the comic, uh, uh, you know, years after it had finished and, uh, had kind of all of the wikis there for them and, uh, mm-hmm. all the things that sort of like determine what that experience is for you seems to change very much based on kind of like generationally, uh, when you read Homestuck or enter the fandom. And now I think we're probably a part of that, right? Like I have seen, uh, things we have said on this show influence like Homestuck discussion in other spaces that aren't just our discord. Right. Oh no. Horrifying. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I've seen people repeating the the object teaches you how to read it thing. <laughs> like that might be our lasting marker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that's right. It does. <laughs> Woo. Uh, but uh, uh, in terms of like just other other sort of like stuff that I've like looked at in the fandom, uh, I just want to like you know pop out a couple things or like tendencies that I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of people who are super into the trolls, right? Uh, there's Vast mm-hmm. Error, for instance, which is like this really elaborate and long AU that's kind of like totally uh, uh, like a troll session. Um, you know, a whole bunch of trolls, all trolls all the time. Uh, new trolls? Yes, Old trolls? new trolls, right? New trolls, like a whole new host of fan cool. trolls. Um, cool. Uh, then there's like, you know, sort of like smaller slice of life stuff. Uh, uh, this is the other beautiful thing is like, I don't have to really like engage too closely with the fandom now that I'm doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Cause now like people come to my discord channels and just like talk about things and I get to like look them up on my own time and be like, Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you're working on troll, AU, write my, my fan troll in people pig. 
Put Peepa Pig yeah. in. Do that. I want to see it. Yeah. Uh, but then there's something something that I thought was very cute uh, uh, was Therapy Stuck, which is um, about uh, Solux going to therapy and the therapy is like a carapation who's kind of like, you know, sort of a version of the mayor, right? Taking the mayor's character type and being like, well, what if he was like, you know, um, uh, a therapist or, or something, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. Uh, that's really cool. There's a lot of like, uh, like sort of fix it fix that are, I think, really popular right now. Um, being like fix it, uh, being in, if you're not a fandom person, right? Uh, if, if you are of the opinion that your franchise really went off the rails, your fix it fic mm-hmm. is going to be your attempt to write an, a new ending that resolves the issues that, uh, uh, you have with however the thing actually shook out uh Mm -hmm. so there's like burning and some of these are getting really elaborate right uh burning down the house is uh one that even has like its own flash animations and like the the second page you know it starts with them getting ready to go through the door um uh and uh they uh, uh, like they go through the door. It's the end of the comic, and then you get like the next page is like this flash animation. That's just like here's everyone having a good time on Earth C, right? Like thumbing right. thumbing the nose at everything that goes on in the epilogues. It's like, oh, okay, like you want to be like, hey, fandom, here's what you want, suckers. No, like everyone's gonna have a good time. They're gonna hang out and they're gonna like fly around and have adventures. Um, uh, Kitty Quest is another one. Like the other thing that I should notice, like the art on these things and sort of like the, the real pleasure for me, I think as someone who like gets more distant from the, the object or from the projects, but like is tracing like longer lineages, um, the variety of art styles, right. Uh, that you see different people kind of apply and it's all kind of a little different. Uh, uh, it does bring back the feeling of, uh, reading early Homestuck where Hussey would change like visual representation styles every couple of pages just to kind of experiment and see what was going on. But now you see like different people taking their own style and applying it. It's it's really great. Uh, Kitty Quest is a uh, uh, sort of like AU kind of thing that's like about uh, uh, Jade and Dave Pettisprite's uh, daughter uh, in kind of like the far future of Earthsea after basically like I, I don't think it uh, is. I, I don't know if it ignores the epilogues or if the epilogues show up in some oblique way. But the kind of idea is like. Whatever conflict might be introduced here in the epilogues, uh, skip to the end. That's over. Whatever. And this is another fanfic thing. Like what? What's? Uh, we're just going to like skip over the actual conflict and imagine what these characters' lives are like afterward. And so it's kind of about um, uh, uh, Jade and Dave Pettisprite's daughter, and like the it plays with the visual language of Homestuck in a way like it does, you know, little jittery animated gifs and so on and so forth. But like all of the, um, and it's like pulling assets out of stock photos, but like every scene has like lighting and it's just so cool to see like these things develop out of, uh, what was Homestuck. Right. Um, uh, and then of course there's a, a, a pretty big fic that is often held up as kind of like a dis contradistinction to the epilogues called God feels that has uh, several installments now um, and has like had multiple writers work on it. Uh, but it starts just or rather it, uh, the first part of it was published just before the epilogue started. Um, uh, and the reason this is noted is because it ends up feeling a lot like the epilogues because it's also about like, 
hey, uh, what if John was extremely traumatized from everything that happened to him during the course of Homestuck, and now he has to live on this planet with all of his friends while uh, being a god with unthinkable powers that he doesn't even quite understand or have the ability to control. Um, hmm. And this uh, then turns off into... Uh, it, it goes to some entirely different places uh, by the end, but one of the big hallmarks of a God Feels, I think, is that it uh, takes a common um, fandom idea uh, that you can read Homestuck as a kind of a story about John being um, uh, trans and closeted. Uh, hmm. And so there, there was a, a popular sort of fan iteration of a, a John who transitions uh, June Egbert um, and June becomes canonical within God feels right. Like that's uh, uh, hmm. like part of that story. And I know that I, it would be remiss of me, I think, not to mention uh, how many people have uh, uh, been able to use Homestuck as a story about their own transitions in, in that way. Right. I've talked a lot about my own experiences with my queerness, but um, I think that that's a really defining feature of like the contemporary Homestuck fandom for like the generation, like half a generation younger than me and beyond. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone who I kind of knew personally who was in into Homestuck before we began <laughs> the show, they they all either had transitioned already or were or did transition mm-hmm. right uh, at some point. I I think uh, at literally a one hundred percent rate. <laughs> I didn't know that many Homestuck people, but yeah, it, it is it is a high number. Yeah. So I just uh, uh, I think those are some happier things to point at, right? Like uh, the, I, yeah. I think the Homestuck uh, actual brand exercise ends in a very sad way, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still something to be done with the subject, and people still aren't doing those things and finding that meaning there. And I think that's really really cool. Um, geez, I'm crazy. That's cool. We got to talk about one last thing. Okay, the mayor. The mayor. Canonically, they killed the. They mayor. They killed the mayor canonically. It's oh. what the fuck? I, I mean, I guess he died of old age. I don't know. It was only seven years. Oh, that's true. he lived for like eternity. Oh, yeah, he did live for like eternity on Earth. Oh, yeah. What the fuck? <sighs> he does get that one scene where like John travels back into the main story and right. like right. sees the mayor and the mayor just like gives him a thumbs up. <laughs> Yeah, I just don't get it. Why kill the mayor? <laughs> I guess if there's a mayor, you don't need a president. I guess like true. everyone agrees. Like if the mayor exists, why wouldn't you elect the mayor? That to, president, to make him the president. That's actually that's a really compelling solution, right? <laughs> to have the mayor alive on Earth C means there could be none of the political plot lines because everyone just right. be like, well, obviously the mayor is in charge. <laughs> right. So maybe that's it. But and I think even Dave says that. But. Uh, yeah, just what a disappointing, and maybe that's just like a withholding, mm-hmm. you know, a purposeful withholding of the mayor, but it's, uh, it's a bad choice, mm-hmm. like objectively, yeah. and I hate it, and uh, that's why the epilogues are bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they are a priori bad, because the mayor's not in them, except for one scene. No, it's fine, you know what, uh, after talking about it for three and a half hours, um, I came in hot yeah. about the epilogues being bad. Mm-hmm. I think they're fine. And, uh, here's why. Okay. I never have to read them again. Bow, bow, bow. And you've made some co- and you've made some compelling arguments about them. <laughs> so sure, whatever. All right. 
Uh, well, that this has been Homestuck Made This World. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And some special thanks to people who have not been on the show, but have been integral in it happening. Um, I just want to shout out Austin Walker again, because him mm-hmm. uh, it, urging me to, to pitch him on that Homestuck piece, you know, I think really does start the ball rolling here. Uh, but I also want to say thank you so much for uh, to Lynn, who has composed uh, all of our theme music, which I think has been rocking. Uh, thank you to Jordo for, uh, doing some editing on our bonus episodes and thank you so much, uh, Andy range touch community member who put together the Tumblr Explorer, which you can find the link to in the uh, episode descriptions, uh, and has been, um, integral for me to like, go back and like, look at fan art that was existing on Tumblr once the something awful thread stopped posting fan art entirely for whatever reason that happened. I guess actually probably Mm -hmm. what happened is most of those people bit the bullet and started posting on Tumblr when they wanted to talk about fan art. Um, right. But also, uh, and there are too many people to name here individually, everyone who reached out to, like, let me know about stuff that, like, they remembered, uh, like, small details or, like, fan, like, the kind of, like, their trajectories, like, how did you get into the Homestuck fandom? What was the fandom you jumped ship from? Or alternatively, when you jumped ship from Homestuck, which fandom did you end up in? Uh, all of these kinds of uh, uh, weird ripple effects. Uh, 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 everyone who sent in, like, videos for, like, the, the bonus episode where we watched fan animations and stuff. Again, thank you so much um uh it's been uh really nice to be able to finally talk about all of this stuff uh with someone with people and to get some of these ideas out there because i've been thinking about them for a a, a long long time uh next time there is no next time well there's kind of a next time I guess a non-canonical next time. Yeah, a non-canonical next time. If you go to youtube.com slash range touch and subscribe, uh, you will get notified when uh, our next little interim project boots up. And that is, as I've already said, a uh, let's play of Undertale. Uh, thinking, having yeah. having all the home stuck behind us, we are now going to turn to un- Undertale and think about Undertale through the lens of Homestuck. What What lessons have mm-hmm. we learned and how can we apply them? Yeah, the uh, we're in, we're kind of in a, an interesting spot. So we'll have our next kind of big deep read show on uh, Book of the New Sun that'll start in the summer of 2023. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this uh, way later, it probably already exists. Uh, so we'll be doing that, and we'll have uh, actually a third person on along with us that's still unannounced uh, about who that'll be. But uh, that'll be coming up, and uh, Undertale will update every two weeks, same schedule as Homestuck, uh, and it'll basically be kind of a little filler show. For a little while mm-hmm. um not as close of a deep dive not as much of a h- historical thing mostly us playing the game and talking about it mm-hmm. um uh as it happens and and so yeah, yeah it'll be up every two weeks um michael's going to talk about bonus episodes in just a minute but also the undertale thing is really cool uh because we're going to do it and if you haven't played it before you can watch us do that and then i believe later this year in 2023 um, there's going to be another show that's a little like Homestuck made this world, but for undertale, that's going to be coming out from kind of a friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say too much about that yet, but keep an eye on the range touch social media accounts in later 2023. So we can kind of kick you off onto another group of people who are, who are going to be doing for undertale and Toby Fox's work, uh, something similar, at least to what we've been doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in the method, um, you can check that out. Uh, it won't be us, but you know, scratch the itch maybe. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and if you listen this far, I might as well say just one more time, uh, if you go to patreon.com slash range touch and, uh, you support us, you will get access to Homestuck Made This World bonusodes. Uh, we've had a whole bunch of them so far. We've read, uh, you know, Promstuck, we've read Detective Pony, uh, which is another, you know, earlier fanfic about Dirk taking over some narrative duties. Uh, we've watched fan animations and these, uh, bonus episodes are going to continue through the Undertale LP, kind of focused on, uh, Homestuck still. So next time uh, on the next bonus ep, uh, ep, we will be talking about Grant Morrison's run on Animal Man, another kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, high watermark of meta comics moves. Uh, then we will be talking about uh, the TV series Arrested Development, about iterative jokes, punchlines, and uh, uh, internet response. Uh, and the final bonus episode will be us talking about Psycholonials, which is uh, kind of clearly uh, Hussey's um, attempt to put the, the Homestuck phenomenon, uh, if not to bed, uh, then at least uh, wrap it up real tight and put it in a dark room and maybe, hopefully, uh, never have it look at or say anything again. <laughs> yeah, really, basically what we're saying is like, if you want the real stuff... Mm -hmm. If you if you want that like final final boss, you know if you want to see the optional content, you gotta pay that money for it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we'll, we'll be doing those, um, and then Book of the New Sun starts in the summer. So uh, pay attention to rangetouch.com, pay attention to twitter.com/slash rangetouch, go to youtube.com/slash rangetouch and subscribe over there. And uh, in two weeks, when the the Undertale thing goes up, I'll put a little. Um, like a boop in here too it's just like a little two minute hey remember go over there so uh if you forget i'll remind you thanks for listening to the show we enjoyed it i enjoyed reading homestuck it was a fun thing i liked everything for the most part all the way up to the epilogues and the epilogues are fine <laughs> uh and uh if you feel the same way great leave us five stars i'm gonna read the final review you want me to do that okay yeah here we go the final review these are the final reviews i don't even have them pulled up i'm gonna do it right and do it live do it live uh all right here we go. This is a good one. This is from Dozens of Friends in D.C. <laughs> great, great name. I love this dang show. I've listened to every episode, never looked at a panel of the comic, and have basically no idea what is happening in the Homestuck story, in quotation marks. But thanks to Michael and Cameron, I know what is happening and what the story is doing. <laughs> Historical me and current day me love this show. It's great. Awesome. Oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe here's another one. Okay. This is a good one. I mean, the other one was good too, but here, this is from Mimit J. Okay. Delicious. Finally, some good food. It's the title. Started reading Homestuck when I was 14 and stuck with it until the end. I have a lot of memories from its heyday, both fond and not, and I will never forget walking to class the morning after watching The Final Flash. It was 2016. The hype had died down, and I was in my second year of undergrad. I didn't have many friends on campus at all, let alone any who read the comics, so there I was, moping along all alone, wearing my Time Aspect t-shirt and quietly mourning what I felt like the end of my childhood when across the quad I saw him, a total stranger, wearing an impromptu air-of-breath cosplay. His shirt looked hand-painted, and his god-tier hood was just a pair of blue sweatpants that he had looped <laughs> over his head and neck. We saw each other, but didn't speak. Just nodded at each other in solemn acknowledgement and went on with our lives. I think about him often. 
Listening to this podcast feels like that to me. My brain is entirely too full of info about this comic, and sometimes it feels like a burden only I carry. I've had to explain to a few of my unsuspecting friends why my eyes go wide with horror whenever I see the book, Have You Filled a Bucket Today? <laughs> uh, Have You Filled a Bucket Today by Carol McCloud. <laughs> That's funny. Thanks to Homestuck Made in This World, I remember that I am not alone. Uh, y'all just make me feel seen. Thanks for making such a great show. Sincerely, this is a long name, but a trans man who often lies about why his middle name is David because I straight up do not have the time to get into it. Oh, oh that's a story. That's a Homestuck fandom story. I've heard versions cra- of that. I, yeah. Oh. Yeah, we can't. Uh, there's not a single part of that that I can top or uh, add to in any kind of way. And truly shout out to that impromptu air breath cosplay. Yes. Oh, thank you so much, folks. Thank you for listening. Uh, Enjoy the world. Take it easy. Bye.